p.m. in the a.m. Good morning. It's a Monday morning as we head back to work. Nine days format here at J.M. in the a.m., which means that the lectures of Rabbi Beryl Wine will be the uh, focus uh, for the most part of our nine days format. We will uh, we will speak with some people on the air. A member of Knesset, Danny Danone, is scheduled with us uh, just after 7.30 this morning. Um, my uh, father's uh, eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, we'll be doing that as we do every single year. Yesterday, the uh, 3rd of uh, Av was the 21st, I guess we would say anniversary, of the Shloshim of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and that's when that uh, speech was delivered. So we'll do that coming up uh, this morning at about 8 a.m. Uh, we'll talk about the rally, of course, Wednesday, 5.30, Times Square, and encourage everybody to be in Times Square for the Stop Iran Now rally in New York City. Uh, so we will be doing some other things, but of course, our Barrel Wine and his uh, brilliant history lectures is a major part of our nine days format here at JM and the AM. Rabbi Wine is uh, available to you uh, by logging on, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com, or by uh, dialing... Uh, uh, by dialing 1-800-499-WEIN. I'm almost sure that's the right number. <laughs> we'll check that. And uh, But certainly online or by wine.com or by WEIN.com. You can check that out and enjoy all the collections of uh, incredible history that he um, has given over the years. So we'll start with our barrel wine. The uh, topic, the subject, the title of this lecture, 5,000 Years in Five Hours. It's the Crash Course in Jewish History, one of our favorites. And the first installment of the five is Avraham to Ezra. And we'll begin our nine days format this year at JM in the AM. I know Matis did some incredible stuff yesterday on the JM Sunday. Uh, we'll begin here with this lecture here at JM in the AM. More coming up. Keep it right here at 91.1 FM, 90.1 FM in the Catskills. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world in the web, jmintheam.org. This lecture series is entitled uh, Crash Course in Jewish History, The Whole Story in Five Lectures. I have discovered that the problem with most crash courses is that they crash. And uh, I don't know whether this is going to be an exception to that rule. But the idea behind the course was suggested to me by a number of people who wanted to have an overview of Jewish history, so to speak, without the details. So uh, we'll see uh, how it turns out. All of Jewish history is the history of people and not necessarily of events or forces in the world. Uh, one of the great departures in uh, the uh, understanding of history in the modern era was the fact that Marx proposed the idea uh, that history almost has nothing to do with people, but that there are certain forces in, in the human civilization, economic, social, political, uh, that force events to occur. 
and that therefore people are only pawns. And this idea which uh, became a tenet of much of modern historiography uh, was based on the idea that the entire gamut of human experience really reflects impersonal patterns in the world and that we are caught in the web uh, but we really do not direct it or control it. That idea is completely contrary to the Torah and it's completely contrary to the Jewish view of things. The Jewish view of things is that everything depends upon individual people. Individual people have choices for good or for better and that those choices bring about consequences and those are the consequences that we call history. And therefore, in tonight's lecture, uh, from Avraham to Ezra, we're basically going to talk about people. But because we talk about individuals, I think we'll see a pattern, and this pattern, I think, should be applied to all of Jewish history as well. The Chumash, the Torah itself, is not a history book per se. But on the other hand, there's a great deal of history that we can learn from it. The Jewish people begins over 3,700 years ago with one family, with a man and a woman, Avraham and Sarah. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, in one of his famous statements, says that if you want to understand where you come from, Habitu el Avraham avichem vel Sarah Look at the life of your father, Abraham, your mother, Sorrow, who gave birth to you, and you'll get the picture, you'll get the pattern. One of the great problems in history is that you can know an enormous amount of facts, but not get it, not understand what the pattern is. And in order to understand it, the Navi says, look at Abraham and Sorrow. And he is expressing the idea that uh, Chazal said, that the rabbi said over and over again, You want to understand what happens in the Jewish world at the end of the 20th century? Uh, you can do that by filtering today's events uh, through the lives of our ancestors, through the events that have occurred to us over the century. Abraham and Sarah come from Mesopotamia, from Babylonia, and they come into a world uh, that is entirely pagan. And there are one or two or three exceptions. There are people like Shem and Aver, people that still have the tradition of Noah from the flood, but the world generally has been destroyed, not by the flood, but by the generation after the flood, the Dorha, Floga. The world is a tyrannical world. Nimrod is Stalin, Hitler. It's a world of technology over human beings. The rabbis phrased it elegantly that when a brick fell from the Tower of Babel, everybody wept and they said, oh, it's going to cost us so much money to get the brick back up. But if a human being fell off the scaffolding, uh, they had plenty of human beings. That was not a problem. That attitude has not departed from mankind. It still exists. Now, Abraham comes into this world. According to Jewish tradition, he's born in the year 1948, 
after creation, after Adam. And there are different traditions, but I, I'm going to mention to you the idea that Maimonides says, the Rambam, uh, that Abraham for the first 52 years of his life was also a pagan. Because that was the society he was brought up in. Only when he was 52 years old uh, did he come to the idea of monotheism by himself. Again, the rabbis expressed it. He looked at the world. One of the basic ideas of the Rambam, that everybody can be a believer on his own. God made it easy for us by revelation. But if there would be no revelation, there would have been no Maimed Ar Sinai, we would still be obligated to discover God by ourselves. And we can do so through our bodies. Mitsori from my flesh I see God. The Rambam says you can do it through nature. You can look at the heavens. But because free will is so important in God's plan in the world, you can be the greatest scientist in the world and know every fact about nature and physics and be a non-believer. Because otherwise free will wouldn't operate. But Avram Avinu discovers God on his own, so to speak. And he and Sora, who uh, don't have an easy life, Avram, uh, in the early part of his life, is impoverished. Sora is a barren woman. Avram is taken and persecuted by Nimrod simply because he's different. He's thrown into the fire. And uh, none of that appears in the Chumash. The Chumash, we would have thought that Avram Avinu is tranquil. Uh, nothing ever bothers them. Because the Chumash wants to impress us uh, with what kind of a person he was. And what kind of a person our mother Sarah was. And we have patterns immediately established. And these are patterns that last. One pattern is Avram is rootless all of his life. Never has a home. Always wandering. And throughout Jewish history, the Jewish people basically are rootless. And even when we settle somewhere, uh, we're never happy where we're at. We always are looking for the next place. His bad joke, Jackie Mason, which is true, is that this man builds a $5 million home in Long Island, and he invites all of his friends to the housewarming, and the first thing he tells them when they come in, to the door is, wait till you see the next one I build. There's an element of truth in that. Avram is rootless. Lech lecha. He's always going. Avram is alone in the world. Even when he is successful. Namiri, uh, in his review of, of history, says that Avram Avinu was successful, that almost half of civilization came to the idea of monotheism during his lifetime, but he's still alone. That's the word ha'ivri. That's why we're called Hebrews. So the uh, historians have invented a tribe called the Habirus that no one else heard about. But the rabbi said ha'ivri, we're called the Hebrews, is because we're on one side and everybody else is on the other side. So Jewish history means to be lonely, to be few among the many. And the Torah will say that to us. You will be the least numerous of all nations. 
God did not choose us for numbers. Lo mirubchem. I did not choose you because I wanted a big people. God would have wanted a large people, he would have chosen the Chinese. So even today, if we look at the Jewish world, there are 13, maybe 14 million Jews, Cain Yerbu in the world today, in a world of over a billion Muslims, over a billion Christians, over a billion Buddhists, over a billion Confucian and Shintoists. So who are we? But look who we are. Look at the tumult. Look at the fact that uh, you can't touch anything in the world without the Jews being there. God told us, you're going to be like your father, Abraham, your mother, Sarah. You're going to be alone. You're going to be rootless. But you're going to be the center of civilization. God also showed Avram that uh, children don't always turn out the way you want them to turn out. And that that also would be true in Jewish life. That there would be no guarantees. Almost every one of the heroes that exist in the Bible, in the five books of Moses and in Nevi'im, almost every one of them has a family that causes them disappointment. Avraham, Yitzchak, and even though Yaakov barely escapes, but the story of Yosef and his brothers it takes the life out of him. Moshe will have a grandson that will be a priest to Avodah The kings of Israel and of Judah will have children that will be pagans and sinners. Almost no one has what in Yiddish we like to say is nachas. But nachas is a hard thing to come by. And unfortunately, almost ironically, even when you have it, you don't know that you have it. Because you've pushed the envelope further. And we don't see it. And yet, uh, the Jewish people, Avraham and Sarah, produce Yitzchak. They also produce Yishmael. Avraham lives in a world where Zdom is the norm, not the exception. Avraham is the exception. The world is the world of Zdom. Mentioned many times uh, that Zdom was not destroyed because it had three million evil people. It was destroyed because it did not have ten good people. That's the lesson of Jewish history. A famous legend that there are 36 people that support the world, 36 righteous people. If you think you're one of them, you aren't. But it's individuals that preserve because the world generally is a world of stone. It's murder and immorality and cruelty, war, violence. In our century, it's somewhat noteworthy, I think, that the century that began with a Balkans war is ending with the same Balkans war. As though the whole 160 million people that got killed in this century, nothing made an impression. Right back where we started from. Because the world is stone. And Avraham sees as his task, as the Jewish people have always seen as their task, the necessity of saving stone from itself.
That, that is, was one, and it remains one of the great ideas of Judaism, of Torah, of Jewish people, is that we pray even for Zdom. We're going to save Zdom. We're going to get them to ten good people. And we're not going to rejoice in their destruction. Because destruction, even when it is valid, does not advance the cause that the Lord wants mankind to achieve. Yitzchak and Rivka are as alone in their world as Avram and Sora were in theirs. Uh, everything that Avram achieved with the Philistines, with Avimelech, has to be done all over again. And Yitzchak and Rivka have a son, Esau, who is the bane of their existence. In their own house, the monster grows. And it is only through Yaakov that they have hope. But Yaakov, who becomes the symbol of all Jewish history. So Avram and Yitzchak were rootlessness, and they were alone. But Yaakov becomes exile, servitude, being abused and exploited. Avraham, the nations of the world, saying, You're the prince of God. You're a great man. Yitzchak, you're a great man. They don't say that to Yaakov. They see Yaakov as a pauper. Someone to take advantage of. And Yaakov attempts in his lifetime uh, to walk the thin line. Somehow to come to an accommodation with Lovan to come to an accommodation with Esau and to remain Yaakov. And because he is able to do so, so God changes his name. And God gives him the name of the Jewish people, the name of the land that we live in, the name of the state that we inhabit. Lo Yaakov Yikore Shimcha Yisrael. Now you're called Yisrael. Because Yisrael has the ability to live in a world of Esau, to live in a world of Lovan, and remain Yaakov. And that is a task that the Jewish people have also undertaken uh, through our long history. When Martin Gilbert, in his book on the Holocaust, so among all of the anecdotes that he has, so he has an eyewitness tell a story that a, an SS soldier picked up a small Jewish child and threw him in a truck that was going to take him and the other children to their deaths. And the child told him, you know, you're Esau and I'm Yaakov. And even though you're going to kill me, I would still rather be Yaakov. That's Yisrael Yikoreshim. That's that ability to remain Yaakov in a world of Esau and love. The Torah also tells us the pattern that the Jewish people are divisive. The Jewish people somehow are willing uh, to uh, argue, disagree, and then after a while mistrust each other and even turn brother against brother. For holy causes, and each of the sides is convinced that they're correct. Each of the sides is convinced that it's a mitzvah. The story of Yosef and his brothers is a story that has not ended until today. And we'll see that throughout the Tanakh it plays itself out. The competition between the tribe of Yehuda and the tribe of Yosef. 
between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judea, and never come to an accommodation. And because it's almost in the DNA, the story of Yosef and his brothers. And it's always, it's all, and I don't mean this sarcastically, it's always L'Shem Shemayim, because Jews have a holy purpose. When you have a holy purpose and you know you're right, so then the other person has to be forced to see the justice of your position. And if you know you're right, then how can the other person be right? And that's what happens here. And Yaakov is powerless to prevent it. Now the Lord promised Avraham that the Jewish people, his descendants, would undergo a process of being annealed in the furnace of slavery and exile. So that out of it would come a people that would be eternal. That would be so tough that nothing would destroy it. But because it's so tough, it's a tough people. The Jewish people are very tough people. They're tough to deal with. If you have any doubts about it, stand in line at the Kupat Cholim. Today I had to stand in line and they ran out of numbers. Well, don't ask. No numbers. And you know, who's the last one? No, I'm the last one. I'm the last one, you know. They would, you know I said to the guy next to me, I said, you know, it's a good thing it's the Gupat Chalim because they're going to beat each other up. So here they can get, they get treatment immediately. Tough people. Has to be a tough people. Otherwise you couldn't survive. Moshe said, I'm Kshayoref, stiff-necked people, stubborn people. That's not all negative, that's positive. We won't be stubborn, who would be, there wouldn't be anybody left. It's only the fact that we're stiff-necked. But on the other hand, it's a tough people. The Jewish people enter the exile of Egypt. Now here also are patterns. Every exile begins well. Begins on a high note. The Jewish people come to Egypt. Uh, Joseph is the viceroy. Uh, the brothers are in Goshen. Uh, the Jewish people are doing swimmingly well. And then the Jewish people become super patriotic. When Paro calls for volunteers to work, all the Jews come to work because they're good Egyptians. And eventually the situation deteriorates. And the Jewish people become slaves. Now they were not the only slaves in Egypt. Egypt was a charnel house of slaves. Existed in the ancient world, uh, even through the time of the Romans. As we'll discuss, it was a world of slavery. Slavery as an institution even existed in the United States until uh, barely more than a century ago. But slavery itself is the most inefficient, uh, inhuman, counterproductive way of building a civilization. And it's always built upon bigotry, and it's always built upon crushing the human spirit. Jews find themselves in Egypt. Our tradition tells us we're in Egypt for 210 years. Our tradition also tells us that it's only the last 86 years and that the real yoke of slavery was imposed upon the Jewish people. But then the Jewish people were destroyed. 80% of the Jews did not survive it. So when 3 million Jews left Egypt, 
600,000 males between the age of 20 and 60, and if we'll uh, extrapolate that to include the, the women and the children, those that were old and young, uh, so we have a number of about 3 million. But 3 million is one-fifth of the Jewish world. And the other four-fifths were lost, which is also a pattern in Jewish history. I mentioned before that we're the smallest of all people. The time of the destruction of the temple, in the year 70, uh, there were about 12 and a half, 13 million Jews in the world, just about what there is today. The idiom that I always use is that there were about 6 million Chinese then. The Jews were twice the Chinese. Now the Chinese now, 2,000 years later, are a billion, 600 million. And we aren't. There's a constant hemorrhaging to the extent that there's Jewish blood almost everywhere in the world. Nine out of ten Spaniards, they have Jewish blood in them. Uh, throughout Europe, even Poland and Eastern Europe, where there was not that great an amount of an assimilation, nevertheless, the sizable amounts of Jews. I was struck uh, when I visited Prague. My wife and I were in Prague, and we spoke to the guides. Everybody in Prague says that they get it, they're Jewish. There's, there are only uh, maybe 5,000 Jews in Prague, 1,500 in the Kihila, uh, but uh, they say there's at least 100,000 people in Prague who claim to be Jewish. We had a Jewish grandfather, a Jewish great-grandfather. And that's what happened to the Jews in Egypt. And Egypt was a place that no one ever escaped from. The Jews tried it. The tribe of Ephraim burst out of slavery, 30,000 strong. The Egyptians uh, didn't even bother to try and bring them back because they knew they would die in the desert, which they did. They are the dead, dry bones that the Novi Yecheskel prophesies about. In the Haftorah that we read on Pesach. You couldn't get out of Egypt. Three million people walked out one day, on a Thursday. We know what day we left. We know that we stood at Sinai on a Shabbos. The Jewish collective memory remembers everything. And God took this people out, and they wandered in the desert for 40 days, and they were somehow sustained themselves miraculously. They had bread and water and food. And they're able to withstand all the vicissitudes of the desert. One of the uh, great archaeological riddles is where is Mount Sinai? I just saw an article that appeared in Vanity Fair uh, that places Mount Sinai in the north western tip of the Saudi Arabian desert. So that Kriyas Yamsuf was across the Straits of Tehran, uh, the entrance to the Red Sea. Maybe. But they've discovered this tremendous uh, mountain. Uh, that was once a volcano, and there, uh, there's tremendous gold and all sorts of things around there. And the Saudis now have made it into a radar base, one of the most sophisticated radar bases in the Middle East. But the Jewish people existed. Rabbi Alehi says the point. You can't fool the Jewish people. The Jewish people by nature are skeptical. Even when something happens, they say it doesn't happen. We're skeptical. We're skeptical people, which is also one of our strengths. So he said, can you imagine somebody making up the story, inventing the story of Sinai? Somebody will come a generation later, or two generations later, or three generations later, and say, you know, you, we, we, you wandered in the desert for 40 years, and you came to a mountain, and God appeared, and he gave you a Torah, 
and it rained mon on you, and yeah, there was a, miracle, a miraculous well. He says it would be ridiculous. The Jewish people never would have believed it if it hadn't happened, if they weren't eyewitnesses to it. They themselves were not part of it. And he says it's interesting that the tradition of Sinai exists amongst all religions in the world. He calls it consensus omnia. Everyone agrees, kuli alma lo that that's where it began. The differences in the religions are what happens later. But everyone subscribes to Sinai. And God tells the Jewish people, I'm going to take you back to the land where Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov live. Now, again, it would be up to us, maybe we would have chosen a different land. Because the chosen land is not so chosen. A few days ago, uh, the climate here was not comfortable. I don't think anybody moves to this country because of the climate. And it's a country that never has enough rain. It's a country that uh, yields its uh, bounty very, very sparingly and difficult. So if uh, God wanted to take us to the chosen land... And the Chumash, it says, I'm not taking you to Egypt. Egypt has denial. The Meforshim say immediately, Egypt has denial. So nobody prays to God because you got denial, right? And so I'm going to bring you to this land. And uh, the land is inhabited by others. It's not empty. And the others aren't going to give it to you. And even if you conquer it, you'll have a difficult time maintaining yourselves there. But that's where I want you to be. And I want you to have an attachment to that land. An attachment that will survive 1900 years of absence. Again, something that has never occurred in all of human history. That a people should be away from a land for 1900 years and come back and not only make it their land again, but feel at home in it. As though somehow they never left. And that this is their place. With all of the difficulties of living in this country, and there are many, and they should never be underestimated. But one thing I think that almost all Jews feel is that somehow uh, there's a deja vu feeling. You know, I've been here before. I mean, that was the first feeling I had uh, the first time I came there to Israel. I got off the airplane. I never was here. Uh, but I had the feeling that somehow I had been here before. The feeling that I don't have when I went to San Antonio. So God said, I'm going to give you the land. And you're going to try and become a people in this land. So the first stage are individuals. The second stage is the slavery of Egypt. The third stage is that you're going to develop as a people in the desert. Now we're going to try the great experiment. We're going to try and make you... An abnormal people in a normal situation. An abnormal mamleches kolanim goy kodosh, a holy people. But you're going to have to run a country. You're going to have to have a nation. You're going to have to have leaders and armies and taxes and lawyers. All the things that go with it. And that's the ultimate experiment. And that's the ultimate accomplishment that the Jewish people are able to do it. This is the
We've tried it twice and been unsuccessful. This is the third attempt. We pray that we will be successful. Uh, but it will take a great deal of effort and will also take some uh, knowledge and experience as to why we were not successful the first two times. We learn another lesson that the Torah wants us to learn, and that is that the greatest and holiest of people are mortal. You have Moshe Rabbeinu, who goes to Sinai, brings down the Torah, Peal Peal Daberbo speaks to God directly, there's nobody like Moshe ever. Lokombi Yisrael Kamoshe Od. that sees the countenance of God, so to speak. About the Chasreyu Mat Melakim, it says in Tehillim, that refers to Moshe. Moshe is one level below. But Moshe dies. On Simchas Torah, we have a piyut uh, that we recite, but we recite it uh, later in the day when everyone is already a little happy. Uh, so therefore not much attention is paid to the words. But it's a very somber piyut. It always makes an impression upon me. It's the Lithuanian in me. Moshe Meis Milo Yomus is the name of the piyut. Moshe died, who shall not die? Who is immortal? No one. And that's a lesson in history. Because of the many, many problems in history exist. And because people are not, were not willing to accept the fact that everyone is mortal. And that's a lesson. Moshe is succeeded by Yoshua. So there's another lesson. Yoshua is not Moshe. People say, what kind of leader is this? We're used to better. Pnei Moshe, ki Pnei Chama, Pnei Yoshua, ki Pnei Lavona. Moshe is the sun, Yoshua is only the moon. That's the lesson. Every generation has its leaders. And to uh, compare the generations and leaders is unfair. It's also counterproductive. It does nothing for anyone. Yeshua conquers the country. He is still able to maintain the centrality of authority because people see him as a direct product of Moshe Rabbeinu. But when Yeshua dies, the Jewish people become stabilized. Everybody makes his own place. Then it becomes 12 tribes. Then I'm not interested in you, and you're not interested in me. I have my part of the country, you have your, you have trouble with your part, so that's your problem. I, I'm in good shape in my part. Not only that, the Jewish people so grow apart from each other that they mount a civil war, one against the other. 30,000 are killed in the war, Jew against Jew. The entire tribe, the tribe of Binyamin, is almost destroyed. And the Jewish people come in contact with a culture, the Canaanite culture. So it's one thing to be a good Jew in the desert. One thing to be a good Jew, 40 years in the desert, nobody else is around. There's no civilization, no culture, nothing to compete with. So even then the Jews rebel. But... That's just because they're rebelling. They're not being influenced. Now they come into a country that has a culture. And the culture is not negative. Culture has attractive forms to it. And a large proportion of the Jewish people give up. They become pagans. They lose sight of the vision. And they don't want to be a special people. And therefore, 
this is a recurring theme throughout Jewish history. And God always forces us back into the corner. God never allows that the Jewish people as a whole will leave. Individual Jews can quit. And Jewish people can never quit. Covenant is binding. So the Lord sends shoftim. He sends judges. And they represent different tribes. But they try to centralize the Jewish people. And they try to push them back towards the idea of the mission and the goal of the Jewish people. The entire period of the Shoftim, which is almost 400 years, uh, was almost always a time of war. There are about 120 years that it says, Vatishko Toretz. One place it says, Vatishko Toretz, Shmonim Shona. And by Dvore it says, Vatishko Toretz, Arboim Shona. It was quiet for 80 years, it was quiet for 40 years. But for the other centuries it never was quiet. He had it always going on. If you look over the history of the Jewish people in this country, a very, very small percentage of the time has it been quiet. And the country uh, is under constant attack. The Plishtim are here, the Kanani are here, the Phoenicians are here, and the country finds itself between two great empires, a situation which would persist almost till our day. The southern empire is Egypt. The northern empire will be either Assyria or Babylonia, Mesopotamia, Iraq. And the meeting point of the empires is here in this small country. And the Jews are always subjected to this problem, that both empires are determined to control them and are willing to conquer them. And it becomes a balancing act again. To go back to what I said originally, it's how to be Yaakov in a world of Esau and Lovah. How to be Yaakov in a world of Paro and Saddam Hussein. Finally, the great prophet Shmuel, who marks the end of the period of the Shoftim, arises. And Shmuel again centralizes the Jewish people. Our rabbis tell us that uh, if you make a list, you know, so after Moshe and Yeshua, you have to put Shmuel. And the Jewish people now become a monarchy. Strong kings are necessary. Because otherwise, again, the Jewish people will tear themselves apart. And they will be unable to survive the outside and internal pressures. The first king, Shaul HaMelech, would have won the election 99% to 1. Shaul is the perfect king. Ben Shona, Shaul, Bemolcho. He's free of sin as a one-year-old child. No one has a bad word to say about him. He's the tallest of the Jews. He's the handsomest. He's the bravest. He's the Talmud Chochem. He's the perfect king, except he isn't. There's a lesson there, too. The lesson, again, as Chazal phrase it, you should never appoint a leader that does not have skeletons in the closet. Thank God we have passed that test. <laughs> We are not looking for perfect leaders. Perfect leaders are not what the Torah wants for us. Different matter completely. I always tell the story of uh, the dean in my yeshiva that uh, the most pious boy in our class, he refused to give him smicha because he said that he didn't feel that he was worthy of it or that he could be a rabbi. And his mother came to the dean to plead the boy's case. 
And she said, you know, he's the, he's the most pious boy in the class. And the dean said to him, for piety you get the world to come, not smicha. And there's a lot of truth to that. It's two different things. Shoal bankrupts. It's a disaster. But Shmuel is told to find the other king. The other king is most unlikely. He's short and he's ruddy. His brothers don't have a high opinion of him. He's a shepherd. He wastes his time playing the guitar. God says, here's the king. You'll see. He'll, he'll make it. And David becomes the king. And even though the Tanakh has harsh things to say about David, but David is Melech Yisrael, Chai V'Kayam. When we think in terms of leadership, we think in terms of David. We think in terms of the Messiah, Ben David Ba. When we think in terms of prayer, David is the one that composed the greatest prayer book in human history, the Tehillim. Neim Zmiros Yisrael, the songster of Israel, the person with the magic harp, the person that rose above all personal and national tragedies. Because he had the vision. He got it. He understood what the problem was. And he kept the Jewish people as Yaakov. And he was strong enough to fight Esau on Esau's terms and wily enough the best Lovon on Lovon's terms. David has a son, Shlomo, from his marriage to Bathsheba, which itself is a problem. And Shlomo is the wisest of all people. So again, we think we have the perfect monarch, the wisest, most clever of all people. And he builds the Beis Amigdash, he builds the temple. And the Jewish monarchy reaches the zenith, the high point of its existence. And the land is quiet, there's 40 years of peace, there's prosperity, the Shekhinah is here, the city of Jerusalem is built. The temple is constructed on Hara Maria, but Shlomo also cannot maintain it. Too wise. So again, our rabbis say that anybody that is too, T-O-O, has got a problem. Too rich, too poor, too smart, too dumb, too handsome, too beautiful. Anything that's too is a problem. Because people find it hard to handle. So he said... Uh, I'm above the law. I'm above the Torah. Uh, the Torah says not to have uh, too many horses. That's for the regular king. I can have as many as I want. The Torah says not the king shouldn't acquire too great wealth. That's for the regular kings, but not for me. Too many wives. That's not. I, I can have as many as I want. Then it begins to unravel. So that by the end of his reign... The centrality of the Jewish government is again threatened. We're going to revert back to the time of the Shofti. Except that now there are going to be two major kingdoms. Because there reawakens within the Jewish people the split between Yosef and Yehuda. Between Yosef and his brothers. And there's a great man, Yeruvim ben Avot. The Talmud says was the greatest Talmud Chacham of his time. And he was crowned as king by the great prophet Achia Ashiloni. Achia Ashiloni was lived 
for hundreds and hundreds of years. According to the Medrash, he left Egypt and he was the Rebbe of Elio Anovi. So between Achio and Elio, all of Jewish, the word says, Niskapelis Olam, the entire world is covered because Elio is still around. And Yerovim had the opportunity and he broke away upon the death of Shlomo and he formed the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes. And Shlomo's son, Rechavim, was left here in Yerushalayim with the tribe of Yehuda and partially the tribe of Binyamin. But it was a chance at reconciliation, a chance to put it together. But both sides, both leaders made terrible errors. The Jewish people said to Rechavim that we don't want a dictator. We don't want someone that will be so evil to us. We want someone that will treat us nicely and with respect, that will lower the tariffs and the taxes. The Rechavim uh, said, I'll give you an answer. And the Tanakh, he went and he asked the elders what to do. The elders said, you have to come to an accommodation with the people. Then he went and he asked the young people what to do. The young people said, shove it to them. Show them who's boss. Chutzpah that they ask you. So the rabbi said the rule that if you listen to the young against the old, you're making a mistake. So he gave them the wrong answer. Now Yerovim had a chance. But Yerovim is so consumed with jealousy uh, that he uh, purposely erects a wall, the original Berlin Wall, here at Beitel. And he does not allow the Jews from the northern part of the country to come to Jerusalem, to come to worship at the temple. Because he knows the halacha, that in the precincts of the temple, only the king of the house of David was allowed to sit on a chair. Everyone else would have to stand. And therefore, if they came to the temple they would see that their king was standing while Rechavim was sitting. He could not bear that. So you'll say, but you know, such a great policy decision that affects generations should be influenced by such a petty matter. Well, if you say that, then you don't know human beings. Almost all great events are petty matters. Many a terrible war that has caused Thousands and thousands of lives were started over a petty matter, over an insult imagined. And therefore, Yerovam says, we're going to have a new religion. So he made a strange religion, the Mephorshim tell us. They kept the Shabbos, they kept Kashras, they kept all the mitzvahs, except they worshipped uh, idols. So they had a frum of Odazorah. Reb Reuven Margolius, in one of his great svarim, uh, has a long essay showing how the northern kingdom lived. So they didn't live as non-Jews, they lived as Jews, except that they worshipped Avodah Zarah. And the culture of Avodah Zarah got to them. All of the kings of the northern kingdom, all of them were sinners. None of them had the courage to break away. None of them, even though many of them knew even though many of them were crowned by prophets. And before they became the king, 
they had a platform that they were going to destroy idolatry. When they became the king, none of them were able to do so. So in the year 732 before the common era, after numerous warnings from the prophets, the Jewish people didn't believe that God would ever do anything to them because they said God has got too much invested with them. I always mention that, you know, if you're going to borrow money from a bank, borrow a lot of money. If you only borrow a thousand dollars and you don't pay them back, they'll come after you. They'll garnish your wages. They'll, they'll do everything. But if you borrow a hundred million from them and you're late in the payment, they'll call you up very nicely and see how they can work it out with you. Because you're into them too, too deeply for them just to pull the rug. Well, the same thing, the Jewish people felt that God was, they were into God, so to speak, too deeply. God had invested his name, his Torah, his land, his temple. What's he going to do? He's stuck. So we can do whatever we want. The prophet said that's a terrible error. God is God without the people, without the Torah, without the temple, without the land. He doesn't need you. You need him. And God proved it. Sancheirev came in 732 before the common era, and he took the Jewish people into exile. The ten northern tribes disappeared off the face of the earth. Where are they? Well, most of them moved south to Judea and became part of the tribes of Yehuda and Binyamin. But large sections of them disappeared completely. Legend has them living behind a magical river somewhere. But the Talmud's opinion is that they're never coming back. Gone. And instead, a new people, the Shomronim, the Samaritans, came and inhabited the northern part of the country. The people of Judea took it to heart. But they only took it to heart for a certain period of time. And then they themselves also fell victim to bad leadership and to the fact that somehow they felt that nothing would ever happen to them. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Bovel, descended, destroyed Jerusalem, burnt the temple to the ground. Ninety percent of the Jews were taken into the exile of Babylonia. Ten percent went with the Novyirmia into exile in Egypt. The Jewish nation was over. The Jewish country was ravaged and ruined. There was no future. What was the reaction of the Jews to that? Well, a certain section of the Jews in Bovel came to the Novi and they said, well, if God did that, then we quit. We're not responsible. We're like everyone else. We're going to be Babylonians. God said, no. Oh, no. The Jewish people can never quit on me. J.M. in the A.M. All right, Beryl Wine is um, heading toward the conclusion of this lecture, the first that we presented on this Monday morning. From the series 5,000 Years in Five Hours, the Crash Course in Jewish History, Rabbi Wine is analyzing Avraham to Ezra. He calls it an every man's overview of Jewish history. Information about all of Rabbi, Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures, you can go to RabbiWine.com, RabbiWein.com, or dial 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. The collection 
of uh, lectures that are available is amazing. Incredibly large collection of lectures, and uh, all of them, one better than the next. Uh, so check that out. We'll do more coming up here at JMN, and we'll get to the conclusion of this lecture in the next few minutes. Top of the hour, we'll do our news from Israel coming up with Galei Tzal, Israel Army Radio News. It is a Monday on this July 20th, the 4th of Av, middle of our nine days format. An hour from now, we will play the eulogy that my father delivered in uh, memory of the Lubavitcher Rebbe 21 years ago. This is a very much requested piece that we do each year during the nine days. It was delivered originally on the 3rd of Av. Today's the 4th of Av. It was done at the Shloshim of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. 81 degrees outside. It is hot and very humid. 89% humidity. Winds are west at 4 miles per hour. And sort of like it was yesterday in this area, we are going through a heat wave with afternoon thunderstorms uh, later on and a high temperature of 97 degrees. Wow. Uh, actually, make that 92 degrees, but I'll still give it a wow. Uh, tonight, partly cloudy, low 76. Tomorrow, partly cloudy, a high of 91.1. Yerushalayim is at 87 up in Guilford, New York, where we had a fabulous visiting day with our friends at Camp Missouri yesterday. They've got 68 degrees heading up to 85. A, a best regards to all the camps that uh, hosted parents and friends from all around. Uh, people came from everywhere to be part of visiting day in so many different camps around the uh, Catskill and Pocono region. So a, a very, very big uh, yeshikach to all the camps who did a great job in greeting all the parents and friends and relatives. Hope everybody got home uh, safe and sound and enjoyed spending time with family. It was great that you get to see so many amazing families spending time together during a visiting day. So uh, here we are on a Monday as we head back to school, I should say back to work rather, uh, a lot of people out there are taking advantage of our three radio stations, so starting with the uh, Catskills at 90.1 on the FM dial, then going to Rockland County at 91.9, and, of course, our flagship at 91.1. And uh, many folks, as they head back from the Catskill region this morning to the New York, New Jersey area, are taking advantage of all three radio stations. Yesterday, I was able, I was able to convince at least, oh, I don't know, five people or so, that the best way to tune in is the NSN app. Uh, go to the NSN app and just uh, easily receive your daily broadcast, your daily dose of JM in the AM and the Nahum Siegel Network. It is really easy. And uh, why torture yourself if you're out of the radio area? Um, make sure to be tuned in on the NSN app and get everything loudly and clearly. It is a uh, a wonderful way to start your day no matter where you are around this world. Yeah, for some people it wouldn't be starting the day, but you get my point. Uh, JM in the AM Monday at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial broadcasting live from the Sony and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. Golly, it's all in the background. We'll do our news from Israel coming up by Goldwasser at the bottom of the hour. Danny Danone, member of Knesset and member of the cabinet in Israel, scheduled to join us at 735, barring any last-minute uh, difficulties. Uh, he'll join us right after by Goldwasser. He's always been very receptive. My father's eulogy of the Lubavitch Rebbe in the third hour this morning. Reminder, Wednesday, 5.30 p.m. is the Stop Iran Now rally. Wednesday, 5.30 p.m., New York City, 42nd Street, 7th Avenue. Please circle your calendar and block out that time so you could be there this coming Wednesday in Manhattan, in New York. 
We'll talk more about the uh, about the rally, of course, as we get closer and closer. But it's really simple. Five thirty tomorrow in Times Square. A hey, Wednesday, five thirty Wednesday in Times Square. Galay Tzal, Israel Army Radio, two p.m. newscast next at JMN. גלי צהל השעה שתיים, כאן שיבל קר ממנסור עם מה שקורה עכשיו. נמנעה השביתה במשק, האוצר וההסתדרות הגיעו להבנות בנושא עובדי הקבלן. יונה לייבזון. שר האוצר משה כחלון ויושב ראש ההסתדרות אבי ניסנקורן הגיעו להבנות על קליטת עובדי קבלן במגזר הציבורי, מה שמבטל את השביתה הכללית במשק, עליה הכריז יושב ראש ההסתדרות שהייתה צפויה להתקיים מחרתיים. ברגעים אלה ממש מנסחים הצוותים המקצועיים של הצדדים את ההסכם המלא. שיוצג במסיבת עיתונאים בעוד כחצי שעה. יולדת במצב קשה מאוד עקב תסחיף מי שפיר. כתבתנו יערה שפירא. היולדת בת 43 מאושפזת במחלקה לטיפול נמרץ בבית החולים ביילינסון עקב קריסת מערכות גופה במהלך ניתוח קיסרי. הרופאים מעריכים כי תסחיף מי שפיר, אירוע דרמטי ונדיר, הוא שגרם להידרדרות המפתיעה. התינוקת שנולדה מאושפזת במחלקת הילודים במצב טוב. 28 שנות מאסר נגזרו על המחבל שביצע את פיגוע הדקירה בקו 40 לפני כחצי שנה. מבית המשפט כתבנו איתמר קציר. הפרקליטות ועורכת דינו של המחבל חמזה מכרוך ביקשו עונש של 28 שנות מאסר בפועל ובית המשפט קיבל את בקשתם. לפני כחצי שנה ביצע מכרוך את הפיגוע בקו 40 בו נפצעו 12 אנשים והוא הודה והורשע במסגרת הסדר הטיעון בעבירות של ניסיון רצח הנהג ובריבוי מקרים של חבלה בכוונה מחמירה. כתב אישום הוגש נגד רוצחי החקלאי דוד בר כפרה. כתבתנו קרן בן מרדכי שמעה בבית המשפט את בנו אליה. אני חושב שהפרקליטות לא בדקה לעומק את המקרה, היא מתעלמת משאלות הקשות שעולות בחקירה. חסרות הרבה מאוד ראיות בגוף החקירה. כל החקירה הזאת שמתנהלת על בסיס שני חשודים, היא לא, היא לא חקירה רצינית. ראשי המתנחלים מחריפים את הביקורת על ראש הממשלה נתניהו, כתבנו ענבל תמיר. במכתב ששלחו ראש מועצת יש אבי רועה וראש מועצת בית אל שי אלון לחברי הליכוד, הם מבקשים מהם להפעיל לחץ על נתניהו כדי שיקדם בנייה בהתנחלויות. בהוראת ראש הממשלה נעצרו כל הליכי התכנון ומכרזי הבנייה, הם כותבים. מדיניות נתניהו מקפלת את דגל ההתיישבות. אנו פונים אליכם בבקשה להיות המשענת האמיתית שלנו בממשלה ולדרוש מראש הממשלה לקיים את הבטחתו, כך במכתב, שצפוי לעלות גם בישיבת עשייה בעוד כשעה. התפרעות אוהדי ביתר, ראש עיריית ירושלים ניר ברקת מותח ביקורת על התנהלות הבעלים אלי טביב, הוא דיבר בגל"צ עם רינו צרור. מטריד אותי מאוד האמירות של אלי טביב, היא ביתר ירושלים, זה סמל במדינה, היא חשובה לנו מאוד בעיר ירושלים, חשוב שהיא לא תהיה מזוהה עם אלימות, אלא עם הסמל של המנורה, ואמרתי לאלי והבהרתי לו שאני חושב שאם עתידה של ביתר ירושלים חשובה לו, או שימשיך להשקיע, או שיאפשר לאחרים להשקיע. דיווחים ברשת הודלפו הפרטים האישיים של המשתמשים באתר הבוגדים, אשלי מדיסון, כתבתנו שירה הדס נקר. הפרטים של 37 מיליון לקוחות החברה עלולים להתפרסם ברשת, ביניהם כרטיסים אישיים, תמונות עירום וכרטיסי אשראי. לצד מעט השמות שההאקרים כבר פרסמו, הם כותבים, הגברים שמשתמשים בשירות הזה הם בוגדים מטונפים ולא מגיעה להם דיסקרטיות כזו. אלה החדשות שעורך אילי לוין. J.M. in the A.M. That's Gali Tzal, of course.
Rabbi Beryl Wine is uh, in the middle of his lecture on the uh, first of the 5,000 years and five hours uh, part here at JM in the AM. And uh, we'll get back to it in just a moment. The uh, Jerusalem Post, as we look at some of the news stories from Israel, um, reports that the European Union will approve the Iran nuclear deal with world powers on Monday, a first step toward lifting Europe's economic sanctions against Tehran. The bloc hopes will send a signal that the United States Congress will follow. EU foreign ministers were meeting in Brussels Monday to discuss the deal reached last week. The U.N. Security Council is also likely to vote to support it in a resolution later in the day. Today... We expect the Security Council to endorse the agreement, and we will do the same in the Foreign Affairs Council today with the ministers, this is according to the EU Foreign Policy Chief Federica Mogherini. Um, she told reporters as she arrived for the meeting, the EU will eventually lift its economic and financial sanctions and may reopen an EU delegation in Tehran, but will retain its ban on the supply of ballistic missile technology and sanctions related to human rights. So the EU is scheduled to come out full-fledged, full-force, uh, for the Iran deal later today, if they haven't already. And uh, this uh, supposedly is going to put more pressure on the United States Congress. Uh, we remind everybody that Wednesday at 5.30 in Times Square is the big rally to stop Iran Now rally. That's going to be happening in Times Square at 5.30 this coming Wednesday. Plus, we remind you that this is a golden opportunity, as we mentioned many times last week, to speak with members of the House of Representatives, members of the United States Senate, those who serve in your area and in your state, and um, let them know your feelings regarding this agreement with Iran. And uh, hopefully, if a couple of the effective leaders in the United States Congress, including some local members of the House and senators, take it upon themselves to lead on this issue, hopefully many others will follow. That's the goal. Seven minutes after the hour, Rabbi Beryl Wine on the topic of 5,000 years and five hours. The first lecture is Avraham to Ezra. We'll try to do the conclusion of this lecture now and continue with plenty more here at JM the AM. I remind you that Danny Danone, member of Knesset and member of the cabinet, is scheduled to join us at the bottom of the hour. Speak to him about the deal with Iran and plenty more right here at JM in the AM. Information about Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com, or 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. And therefore, Yeruvim says we're going to have a new religion. So we made a strange religion, the Mephorshim tell us. They kept the Shabbos, they kept Kashras, they kept all the mitzvahs, except they worshipped uh, idols. So they had a frum of Odazorah. Reb Reuven Margolius, in one of his great svarim, uh, has a long essay showing how the northern kingdom lived. So they didn't live as non-Jews, they lived as Jews, except that they worshipped Avodah And the culture of Avodah got to them. All of the kings of the northern kingdom, all of them were sinners. None of them had the courage to break away. None of them, even though many of them knew, even though many of them were crowned by prophets. And before they became the king, they had a platform that they were going to destroy idolatry. When they became the king, none of them were able to do so. So in the year 732, before the common era, 
after numerous warnings from the prophets, the Jewish people didn't believe that God would ever do anything to them because they said God has got too much invested with them. I always mention that, you know, if you're going to borrow money from a bank, borrow a lot of money. If you only borrow a thousand dollars and you don't pay them back, they'll come after you. They'll garnish your wages. They'll, they'll do everything. But if you borrow a hundred million from them and you're late in the payment, they'll call you up very nicely and see how they can work it out with you. Because you're into them too, too deeply for them just to pull the rug. Well, the same thing, the Jewish people felt that God was, they were into God, so to speak, too deeply. God had invested His name, His Torah, His land, His temple. What's He going to do? He's stuck. So we can do whatever we want. The prophet said that's a terrible error. God is God without the people, without the Torah, without the temple, without the land. He doesn't need you. You need Him. And God proved it. Sancheirev came in 732 before the common era, and he took the Jewish people into exile. The ten northern tribes disappeared off the face of the earth. Where are they? Well, most of them moved south to Judea and became part of the tribes of Yehuda and Binyamin. But large sections of them disappeared completely. Legend has them living behind the magical river somewhere. But the Talmud's opinion is that they're never coming back. Gone. And instead, a new people, the Shomronim, the Samaritans, came and inhabited the northern part of the country. The people of Judea took it to heart. But they only took it to heart for a certain period of time. And then they themselves also fell victim to bad leadership, and to the fact that somehow they felt that nothing would ever happen to them. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Bovel, descended, destroyed Jerusalem, burnt the temple to the ground. Ninety percent of the Jews were taken into the exile of Babylonia. Ten percent went with the Novi Irmia into exile in Egypt. The Jewish nation was over. The Jewish country was ravaged and ruined. There was no future. What was the reaction of the Jews to that? Well, a certain section of the Jews in Bovel came to the Novi and they said, well, if God did that, then we quit. We're not responsible. We're like everyone else. We're going to be Babylonians. God said, no. Oh, no. The Jewish people can never quit on me. And then we have the story of Purim, where Haman proved that you couldn't quit. Haman was looking for every Jew. Didn't make a difference. I'm Mordechai. He's not just looking to kill Mordechai, because Mordechai is a big black hat and curls and funny looking. He's out to get them all, the professors, the doctors, the diplomats, the bankers. I'm Mordechai, everybody he wants. And Jewish people are saved. The story of Purim, which happened 52 years after the destruction of the first temple. And Jewish people are saved miraculously. Again, by a fluky story. Beishakov girl wins beauty prize, right? Miss Universe. 
couldn't invent a story like that. And the Jewish people all of a sudden caught on. And Purim becomes the second Kabbalah Satora, the second acceptance of the Torah. Kimu v'kiblu ayudim aleim, aleim valzarom, the Jewish people accepted. Yes, there's a covenant and we're going to, we're going to, we're part of it. We agree that we can't quit. Eighteen years later, a descendant of Queen Esther will give permission to the Jews to return to the land of Israel. And the second attempt at being Yaakov in a world of Lovan and Esau will begin. This time under the leadership of one of the greatest men in Jewish history, Ezra. Our rabbis tell us if the Torah was not given through Moshe, it would have been given through Ezra. And so we'll talk about how that developed and the idea of the second commonwealth and the second temple and the experiences, again, of the Jewish people. This concludes tape number 418, Abraham to Ezra, by Rabbi Beryl Wine. For subscription information or to order additional tapes... J.M. in the A.M., there it is. <coughs> Excuse me, as the announcer just said. Uh, Avraham to uh, Ezra as Dunbar by Beryl Wine in the 5,000 years and 5 hours crash course in Jewish history. The... Um, Information line, <coughs> excuse me, is 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. You could also go to the website or by wine.com. His incredible array of lectures on so many different topics of Jewish history is available to you. And is if you don't have any type of a barrel wine collection, I can recommend to you that it's well worth starting one. And now makes it even easier because so many of the lectures, if not all of them, are available in MP3 format, and you could actually install them straight to your computer, your iPhone, etc., and listen as you wish. Monday morning broadcast, JM in the AM. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a JM in the AM for July 20th, the 4th of Av. My thanks to Matis Weingast for getting us started yesterday with our nine days format during JM Sunday. Pleasure to, uh, to continue uh, each and every year to bring you a nine days format appropriate, of course, for this week. Tisha B'Av is being observed on a Sunday. Tisha B'Av is Shabbos being observed on Sunday. I will remind you as we get closer and closer about some of the things happening on Tisha B'Av, including the Mincha service at the Isaiah Wall that has, excuse me, that has become a tradition here in the New York area over the last uh, many decades. Two o'clock. This coming uh, Sunday, this yeah, this coming Sunday, two o'clock. This coming Sunday, everyone is encouraged to uh, to come to Mincha and be inspired and um, uh, participate. Bring your talis and tillin, of course, and it is a full fledged, amazingly inspiring Mincha service. It is really uh, something very inspirational. A lot of guest speakers this year. Because it's a Sunday, we would hope that uh, people have an opportunity to stay around a little bit longer and to be inspired by the proceedings. So that's happening at 2 o'clock this coming Sunday at the Isaiah Wall. It's 42nd, between 42nd and 43rd Streets on the west side of the street of 1st Avenue. The west side of 1st Avenue between 42nd and 43rd. That's where it is uh, taking place this coming Sunday. And there are other things happening, of course. We spoke last week with Ray Weil from the OU about the Kinnis service that's going to be on. OU.org, uh, certainly worthwhile, and so many other things are going to be happening specifically 
uh, for Tisha B'Av. You can check out our community calendar online. If you go to jmnam.org and click on community calendar, and you can see some of the events that are happening. Rabbi Goldwasser is going to be with us a few minutes from now, as is our daily tradition here at JMNAM. After that, Danny Danone, member of Knesset, a member of the cabinet in the state of Israel, is scheduled to join us, talk about the Iran deal, etc. Hour number three, my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe is coming up. That's something that was done uh, 21 years ago on the 3rd of Av, the Shloshim of the Rebbe. And uh, it's a piece that gets uh, many requests each and every year. And we do it uh, in our nine days format here at JM in the AM. The next installment in Ribera Wines uh, Lectures takes us from Ezra to Ravina, 5,000 years in five hours. In this hour, it's Ezra to Ravina. We'll do the beginning part of this lecture for you right here at JM in the AM. My friends, uh, we are going to continue tonight with uh, this crash course in history. And tonight, uh, I'm going to discuss with you the period of the Second Temple at Abayashani and the period of the uh, Mishnah and the Talmud. When the Jews came back with Ezra, uh, the vast majority of Jews did not return to the land of Israel. The Jewish community in Egypt and the much larger Jewish community in Babylonia in effect, uh, had become accustomed to the exile. Not only accustomed, uh, but they, uh, to a certain extent, felt at home in the exile. And because of that, when Ezra sounded the call after Koresh, the king of Persia, originally gave permission, and then later uh, his successor, Darius, who according to the Medrash was a child of Queen Esther and therefore halachically Jewish, also gave uh, permission uh, to Nehemiah to return. Most of the Jews did not return. Not only that, those that did return with Ezra and later with Nehemiah uh, were not the elite of the people. Uh, the Talmud teaches us, Asora Yuxin Olam Ibovel. There were ten levels of uh, pedigree, so to speak, uh, that came from Bovel to the land of Israel. But those that remained in Bovel were of pure and high pedigree. And the Jews in Babylonia and in the Persian Empire were very well established, uh, not only physically and financially. Uh, but spiritually and intellectually as well. The Torah institutions there were solid, they flourished, uh, whereas uh, the question of what would be in the land of Israel was very problematic. When Ezra came, the country was inhabited by the Samaritans, the Shomronim, and there was a, immediately a war. Uh, Nehemiah writes, in his uh, book, uh, in the book of Ezra, that uh, we had to build, he said, with one hand on the trowel, on the bricks, and one hand on the spear. And the uh, Jews in uh, the land of Israel faced tremendous hardships. There also was no king that was allowed by the Persian government. 
the heir apparent who would have been Zerubovel, who was descended from the house of David, uh, never was able to assume the role of a monarch. And instead the Jews were governed uh, by a, a large committee called the Anshei Knesset Agdola, the members of the Great Assembly, of whom there were 120, uh, many of the last prophets of Israel, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Ezra, Mordechai, they were part of the Anshei Knesset Agdola, and the last surviving member of the Anshei Knesset Agdola was Shimon Sadik who was the high priest of Israel. The Jews uh, found themselves in a poor country, uh, economically speaking, in difficult situations, but nevertheless they took hold. And they rebuilt the city of Jerusalem, though in a much smaller and uh, less ornate fashion than had been at the time uh, before the destruction of the first temple. And they also built the second temple. The second temple was uh, an unimpressive building, so to speak. It was made of wood. They could not afford any gold or silver. Our rabbis tell us in the uh, Talmud that those, uh, the elders of the generation, those who lived through the whole 70 years of the exile, and those who saw the temple the first temple of Solomon uh, wept when they saw the second temple of Ezra uh, because of the fact that it was so uh, puny and poor in comparison. But it nevertheless was a temple. And the rabbis also said that the second temple lacked certain of the miraculous amenities which existed in the first temple. And there also was no more prophecy. When the prophet Malachi died, and that's a uh, difference of opinion in the Talmud who Malachi was, whether he was Ezra, or whether he was a separate person. But when he died, that was the end of prophecy, and there is no more prophecy. So the Jewish people had to learn a new way of existence. Without prophets, and the uh, Shechina, so to speak, the holy presence in the temple uh, was not as blatant as it was in the time of the first temple. So we enter into a new phase in Jewish history, a phase where the majority of Jews live outside the land of Israel, where the national home is, relatively speaking, small and weak, where there are no prophets, and instead of reliance on prophets, and on godly revelation, the reliance is upon the Talmidei Chachomim, amongst the scholars of Israel, uh, those who represented the Torah. They became the leaders of the people, and our rabbis teach us that great rule, uh, Chacham Adif Minavi, that a wise man, a Talmud Chacham, is greater than a prophet. His intuition, his sense of what is right, is even more unerring than that of a prophet who has to wait, so to speak, to hear what God tells him. So this is an entirely new scenario for the Jewish people. Another change that occurred was that the old uh, pagan idolatries 
amongst the Jewish people died out. Now they would be replaced by new problems. But the old ones were gone. In the words of the Talmud, uh, the men of the Anshei Knesset Agdola put out the eye of the evil inclination of the Yitzhara and people therefore no longer believe, no longer worship Baal or any of the other uh, idols that were so prevalent in the Jewish world during the time of the first temple. Great changes occurred in the world as well. A new empire came, the empire of the Greeks, and it was led by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great came to the land of Israel about the year 325 before the Common Era. The Talmud records his visit, as do the historians, the Greek historians of the time, and Alexander uh, spared uh, Jerusalem and the Temple and the Jewish community of conquest, even though the Jews surrendered to him and the Jews agreed to be subjugated uh, to his domain. Even though they retained their state, it was not an independent state. It was not a state that could do anything without the approval of Alexander. And in honor of the occasion, uh, the Jews uh, undertook that year to name the male sons that were born, to name them Alexander. And that's how the name Alexander, Sender, became a Jewish name. The Jews also undertook uh, that they would uh, adopt a, a calendar uh, commemorating Alexander's coming to the land of Israel, but the Jews, uh, uh, they finessed that a little because the calendar did not begin till the year 312 before the Common Era, uh, a decade after the death of Alexander. That was called Minyan Shtarot, the calendar of legal documents. And that calendar coexisted with the calendar of creation practically till our time. As late as the 1800s, we find, especially in the Sephardic world, uh, documents ketubot that are dated to Minyan Shtarot. J.M. in the A.M. Rabbi Beryl Wine in the midst of a lecture from his 5,000 Years in 5 Hours series. That's the Crash Course in Jewish History. And this one, Section 2 of the 5, is Ezra to Ravina. Uh, a great way to start uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine's contribution to us during our 9 Days format here at J.M. in the A.M. Information about all of his lectures, and there are many, many of them, you can go online, where MP3s are available, and it's really, really easy. 1-800-499-WEIN is the number, 1-800-499-WEIN, or online at RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. He has a series that are uh, uh, just perfect for this time of year, and many others that are perfect for any time of year. Some incredible material. If you have never discovered his work until today, make sure to check it out. Monday on this July 20th, the 4th of Av, 81 degrees, 85 is the not wind chill, but heat index with 81% humidity and winds are west at 4 miles an hour. Afternoon thunderstorms with a high of 92, then tonight partly cloudy and a low of 76. Tomorrow partly cloudy, a high of 91.1. 87 in Yerushalayim, up in Guilford, New York. Our friends at Camp Missouri are waking up to 68 degrees and we're at 81 here in Jersey City as we, as we wake up. 
and say good morning at JM in the AM. Danny Danone, member of Knesset and member of the Israeli cabinet, scheduled to join us next here at JM in the AM. First, Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Echonish Masarov Zev and Yosef Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We learn in the Talmud and Psachim, at the time when the wicked Nebuchadnezzar cast Hananiah, Mishol, and Azariah into the fiery furnace, Yerachma, the master of hail, stood before Hashem and said before him, Rebona Shalayla, master of the universe, I will go down to the world and cool the furnace, and I will save these righteous ones from its flames. Gavriel said to him, The mighty of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not apparent in this manner, for you are the master of hail, and all know that water extinguishes fire. I, however, am the master of fire. I will descend to the world and cool the furnace inside and scald on the outside. Thereby I'll perform a miracle within a miracle. Hashem said to him, Descend. Hagoyin Rebaran Soloveitchik asks what is the symbolic meaning of this piece of Agadita. The Sar Habarod, whose intentions were certainly noble, was of the opinion that the Jews should show more friendship and more goodwill towards the nations. This is the way to overcome anti-Semitism. He thought that by preaching goodwill and different ecumenical ideas, he would be matzliach in cooling the fire of anti-Semitism. However, Gavriel was symbolic of Gvuras Kel, persevering amidst the many hardships for the sake of Hashem. He extinguished fire with fire, only by affirming his own ideology to the extent of Mesiris Nefesh, self-sacrifice. That is what sustains us throughout the long night of Golos. Rebbe Yomin Atzadik, the Magid from Raden, came to visit the Chovetz Chaim. The Chovetz Chaim said to him, Oy vey, Rebbe Yomin, what's going to be? The Golos is so long in the night is so dark. Rebbe Yamin said, Rebbe, I'll give you a marshal. Once in the middle of the winter, a group of Balabatim had to leave for a long journey from Petersburg to Odessa. It was going to take many days. Since it was in the middle of the bitter winter, they went in a special snow wagon that was hitched to two strong and healthy horses. The people inside the wagon were dressed well. They set out on their journey at night and traveled for a long distance. As they sat inside the wagon, the Balabatim said a little tillim, they spoke, the hours went by, then they took a little bit wine in order to warm themselves. After they drank, they soon all fell asleep. Morning came, but in that part of Russia, there was only a little bit of daylight. They slept very deeply for more than ten hours. When they woke up, they saw that it was still dark outside. They said a little more tillim, talked between themselves, drank more, and went back to sleep. The same thing happened again. When they woke up, it was still dark. The passengers turned to the wagon driver and said, What's going on here? How could it be night for so long? The wagon driver said, What type of night do you think this is? It was day twice, but you have been sleeping during the day. So said the Magid to the Chavetz Chaim, this is what happens. We ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu, why is this night of Golos so long? However, the truth is, we sleep through the day, and then there came to be a new night. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you Morning Chizik.
Have a nice day. JM in the AM. Uh, we are anticipating a conversation with member of Knesset, Danny Danone, member of the Israeli cabinet. He can't join us this moment as scheduled, but hopefully will join us at some point this morning here at JM in the AM. Meanwhile, we are continuing with our nine days format presentation of our Barrel Wines amazing lecture series, 5,000 years in five hours. He's doing the segment of Jewish history that he calls Ezra to Ravina, information about Rabbi Beryl Wines, lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN, and Rabbi Wine, RabbiWEIN.com. We continue, and uh, uh, we are hoping that Danny Danone is going to join us from Israel. I will remind everybody that at 8 o'clock this morning, we'll start the third hour with uh, my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe from 21 years ago. More from Rabbi Beryl Wine here at JM in the end. calendar did not begin till the year 312 before the Common Era, uh, a decade after the death of Alexander. That was called Minyan Starot, the calendar of legal documents. And that calendar coexisted with the calendar of creation practically till our time. As late as the 1800s, we find especially in the Sephardic world, uh, documents ketubot that are dated to Minyan Shtarot. And the rabbis chose the year 312 purposely because that was exactly 1,000 years after the exodus from Egypt. So if you knew what the date of Minyan Shtarot was, or is, and you added 1,000, you knew how many years you were from Yitziat Mitzrayim, from the exodus itself. Now, if you can call your child Alexander, you can call him by a different Greek name also. And therefore, we find uh, that Greek names abounded. Even great rabbis were called Antigone. And other Greek names came into the Jewish world. More than that, when Alexander died and the empire split into two, so there was a southern empire called the Ptolemaic Empire, Talmai, headquartered in Alexandria, the city that Alexander built in Egypt, and the northern empire, the Seleucid Empire, which was headquartered in Syria, basically where Damascus is today. And these two empires uh, were constantly at war with each other. And you had this little country in between the two empires located strategically, uh, but as always, it was located in a bad neighborhood. And, I mean, like the Lord did not give us Madagascar or New Hebrides or in New Zealand where really uh, we'd be out of harm's way. Uh, but this little strip of land, the land of Israel, is the bridge between three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And because of that, uh, it was important always uh, for people with imperial ideas that they should control it. So the uh, Jews basically were always on the side of the Southern Empire. The Jews preferred to be under the, the Ptolemaic Egyptian rule rather than the Northern Seleucid rule. The first Ptolemy we have coins from that time. We have even on the coins uh, his picture. At a, one side there's an eagle, and the other side is the picture of Ptolemy. They both have the same nose. 
and uh, Ptolemy ordered that the Bible be translated into Greek. The rabbis saw that even though miracles occurred, uh, the Talmud tells us that the 70 scholars who worked on it miraculously came up with the same translation, uh, something which uh, logically uh, would be an impossibility. 70 different people working independently uh, hardly would agree on every word. But even though there were miracles associated with it, the rabbis saw it as a black day. In the Megillah Tanit, in the... Uh, Shayam in the AM, right? Beryl Wine's lecture series. We'll continue in our nine days format here at JM in the AM, his 5,000 years and five hours. I remind you, it's all available, that and the thousands of other lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN and RabbiWine.com. Any information you need, you can access uh, all the information uh, via either of those uh, two ways. Uh, Danny Danone, who never, ever... Uh, avoids us, <laughs> and I thank him for that. He and his staff are so cooperative, and we're trying to uh, understand a situation better. And uh, in this case, uh, with the Iran deal, just like all the other times, uh, he is more than gracious to join us here at JM in the AM, and we appreciate it very much. He is a um, member of the Knesset for Likud, and he serves as Minister of Science, Technology, and Space. He's Chairman of World Likud, and he, of course, has previously served as chair of the Knesset Committee for Aliyah Absorption and Diaspora Affairs and Deputy Minister of Defense. Danny Danone, welcome back to JM in the AM. Shalom, Nahum. Are you there? Danny, are you there? Yes, Nahum, I'm here. Okay, now we got you. A little bit difficult on the phone line, but I'm glad you're with us, and I thank you very much. What's your reaction to the... Um, to the entire process, as this was all going on, I don't know if you uh, felt that a deal was imminent or maybe uh, maybe you felt that the, likely the deal would fall through the way things were going. What was your reaction once things were solidified and the President of the United States and the P5 plus one announced a deal with Iran? Well, I am, and we are in Israel, very disappointed. And we expected a much better deal after the sanctions became effective. After the crippling sanctions brought the Iranians to the table, we expected that uh, the negotiation would take maybe a little bit longer, but to have a, a real effective agreement with the Iranians. What we see today, it's an ineffective agreement that is maybe, maybe in the, in the good scenario, allow Iran in 10 years to develop the bomb. And in the worst scenario, it can take a few months. Are you, um, I don't want to say surprised, because I never want to be surprised by Jewish unity, but what's your reaction when you hear of the numbers, close to 80% of Jewish Israelis who are against the deal, and you sit in a government that no matter what political position people are from, they are united against the deal? Well, I think we can be proud of that, that you have a bipartisan support for this approach. It is not the Prime Minister or the Likud Party. It's the people of Israel who understand that it is a bad deal for the people of Israel. And we know that uh, the enemies in Iran, they don't differ between left or right. That's why we are all concerned about this issue. And we hope that uh, maybe there will be a change. But we say it very clearly, Nahum, we keep all options on the table. It is not a slogan. 
We have the capability to defend ourselves. We need to, we need to do it. We will do whatever is necessary to protect the Jewish people. Danny Danone is with us, member of Knesset, member of the cabinet in the state of Israel. Um, this is a difficult question to ask of you because I don't know if publicly you want to encourage American jury or jury in general outside of Israel to do anything. But you're one who really understands diaspora Jews. Do you want to see us as those living outside of Israel step up and try to influence our public officials, especially here in the United States, because we know about the imminent congressional approval of the deal. Would you like to see us play a very active role at this point? When I speak with friends of Israel, Jews and Christians alike, I tell them the truth. The truth is it is a bad deal, and we should do whatever is necessary to stop it. I will say it everywhere, uh, on every stage, and I think we should say it in the U.S., in Europe, because it's bad not only for Israel, it is bad for the people who live today in a Western society. The Iranians are burning the flags of the U.S., not only the Israeli flag. And today they have ballistic missiles that can reach Europe, and within a few years they will be able to reach uh, the shores of the U.S. So why to allow uh, this regime to become stronger, to become a, a superpower? I think we should uh, stress this point. It is not about supporting Israel. It's about doing what's good for the American and European people. You know, you're in a unique position because um, we see, and we just saw it this morning, the EU coming out with a statement and being proud of their support of the deal. And, and but, but you must meet colleagues from other countries, not just the United States. You must meet colleagues, members of government from European countries and others, who, who also, like many of us, are shocked that the P5 plus 1 would make a deal like this with a country like Iran. Am I right? Is, is, is there some sanity out there, and there are government officials in other countries who have similar problems with this deal like you and I do? Uh, absolutely. We hear those voices uh, from all over, but you have to realize that uh, once the Security Council will approve it, and uh, once... Uh, the other nations will approve it within their own parliament, it will become a reality. And even now, even now you see a minister flying to Tehran, signing agreement, and the economy of Iran now will be much stronger, and the revenues will go to terror, for Hezbollah, for Hamas. We remember what happened to the Jewish community in Buenos Aires when the Iranian targeted the Jewish community there. We are very worried about it. And I think we should stress it uh, everywhere. Danny, uh, this Sunday we will observe Tisha B'Av, as you know, and and we mentioned it a few minutes ago in terms of the whole Jewish unity aspect. Uh, Is there a a palpable sense of that unity right now? Is there a little bit of a silver lining to this whole situation that people do feel, actually feel, a bit more united in Israel than they may have a few weeks ago because of this situation that they've been tossed into now? Yes, you feel it today, and people understand it's time for unity. But unfortunately, I think that within a few weeks, not only in the U.S., but also in Israel, people will go back to the daily issues and problems, and in Iran they will continue with their approach. That's why in terms of our intelligence and our uh, security forces, 
we will have to open our eyes and ears and make sure that we do not wake up one morning uh, like uh, what we saw happening in North Korea will happen with Iran. I noticed, by the way, I, I, I would guess that uh, you're enjoying your new position, Minister of Science, Technology, and Space. I noticed that uh, you recently took a, uh, a visit, you were on a visit, to the Google offices, their headquarters in Israel. Um, I'm so curious, as much as uh, I want to speak about Iran, obviously, and it's such an important issue, but I'm so curious about the technological boom in Israel, and if it's the same, and if it's moving at the same rapid pace that it has been over the last few years. What's your opinion from your vantage point? Well, uh, we can be very optimistic. We hear a lot about the BDS. We hear a lot about people who are unhappy with Israel. But when I uh, see the innovation, the research uh, and development centers, but not, not only Google and Facebook, but the major companies are, are opening in Israel, we understand that we, we keep our technological edge it is amazing to see people coming from China, Japan, the U.S., Europe, coming to learn. It's coming to, to see what we are doing in terms of uh, keeping the startup nation alive and kicking. There are so many positive things happening. It's amazing that this, that this all can happen in an environment where we know that Israel is in many ways surrounded by enemies and is practically next door to the largest world sponsor of terrorism and a country that the United States and others just went ahead and made a deal with. It's pretty remarkable. Imagine if there was... Tr- it, it, is, it is a story of Israel. Only yesterday I took part uh, in a government meeting regarding the issues of Iran. A few hours later I went uh, to Google uh, where I congratulated the religious girls who are doing national service in, in the cyber. Can you believe that, Nahum? <laughs> Unbelievable. You, you have not shared in national service doing it... Uh, within the Minister of Defense, working on our cyber front. It is amazing. That's what we're doing. In one hand, we follow uh, very carefully what's happening, but at the same time, we keep thinking, developing, and educating the next generation. You're always good for a positive word, even this time of year, which is such a sensitive time for the Jewish people. I'm sure you're very optimistic about the future. Absolutely, and we should believe, and we should uh, remember that uh, we have today uh, the Israeli Defense Forces, and we have the capability to defend the Jewish people. And Hashem, we have also the Kadosh Baruch who is guiding us, and is giving us the courage and support. Well, we'll continue to do what we can on this end. I, I hope you're aware of the fact that there's a major rally scheduled to uh, to get the message across of stopping Iran for this coming Wednesday in Times Square. So whatever little thing we could do here, we're going to try our best to do, and hopefully it will accomplish something. Thank you very much, Nahum. And uh, I want to thank the supporters of Israel, that I know that they are supporting us, praying and standing with us unconditionally. Danny, Tadaraba, you're always amazing to us, and we greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Danny Danone, member of Knesset, of course, and uh, now the minister of science, technology, and space in Israel, chair of Worldly Could, and uh, you heard what he had to say. There's unity in Israel. Unfortunately, that unity has come about, or the increased unity has come about because of this, this situation. I alluded to the rally Wednesday. Please plan accordingly, everybody. Be there Wednesday at 5.30 p.m. in Manhattan. If you're working in Manhattan, it may be the perfect opportunity to leave your place of work and come straight to the rally after work. 
Uh, if you're not working in Manhattan, but you find yourself in the New York, New Jersey area, please do your best to plan your day and be in New York City in Times Square sometime after 5.30. Starts officially 5.30, ends officially 7.30, and we want the Stop Iran Now rally to be filled with as many people as possible, with all of us who are wary of the deal that was recently agreed upon. Please try your best to be there this coming Wednesday, Times Square in New York City. Again, my thanks to Denny Danone. We're going to do more of our Barrel Wines lecture on 5,000 years in five hours. When we hit the top of the hour, we're going to break from Rabbi Wine, and we are going to uh, go back 21 years to the uh, eulogy that my father delivered in memory of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. That's all coming up right here at JM in the AM. Meanwhile, Rabbi Wine continues his lecture on Ezra Taravina from the 5,000 years in five hours Jewish history series here at JM in the AM. Bible be translated into Greek. The rabbis saw that even though miracles occurred, uh, the Talmud tells us that the 70 scholars who worked on it miraculously came up with the same translation, uh, something which uh, logically uh, would be an impossibility. 70 different people working independently uh, hardly would agree on every word. But even though there were miracles associated with it, the rabbis saw it as a black day. In the Megillah Tanit, in the uh, record of fast days in the time of the Second Temple, the day that the translation was completed and published was listed as a fast day. Why? Because the Septuagint, the translation of the Bible into Greek, opened the Jewish world to Greek culture because it had a two-way effect, as it always does. It's not just that the Greeks could now read the Bible, it was that the Jews could now read Greek. And by reading Greek, by becoming part of Greek culture, a great assimilatory uh, situation took place in the land of Israel. Much more so in the land of Israel than in Bovel, where uh, the majority of Jews lived, but in the land of Israel and in Egypt, a large section of the Jewish people became Hellenized. Now, this is different than the paganism, than the idolatry of the first temple. Paganism, the idolatry of the first temple, people believed in a piece of wood, people believed in stone, and they bowed to it. Uh, there was, so to speak, no sophistication to the idolatry. The Greeks, however, brought to the gods a, uh, an enormously attractive culture. Greek culture was beauty, it was sports, it was drama, it was architecture, it was song, it was dance, it was theater, it was poetry. In short, uh, the Greek culture shone. And, uh, as usually happens, uh, Jews were very, very favorably impressed, and they were very attracted to it. What also made it attractive is that most of the Greeks themselves did not believe in the gods, but that the gods were part of the culture. And therefore, if you bought into the culture, so then that was part of it. 
It's estimated, uh, though we don't have any exact statistics, but it's estimated that at least a third of the Jewish people became Hellenized. And the Greeks, uh, Greeks had a great resentment against circumcision because the Greeks worshipped the body and they felt that the body was perfect and therefore they felt that circumcision was a mutilation of the body. And the Talmud records for us that many Hellenized Jews uh, went through very painful surgical procedures in order to make themselves appear as though they were not circumcised. Uh, you also have the fact that amongst the Greeks, nudity uh, was accepted. That also was abhorrent to traditional ideas in the Jewish world where nudity is not acceptable. And the Greeks basically were very immoral sexually, both in terms of homosexual relationships and in terms of heterosexual relationships. So that uh, this tremendous downside to Greek culture immediately brought the Jews and the Greeks into conflict, into a conflict far greater than just the question of sovereignty and taxes and of money and of power. Uh, those things more or less could have been settled. But this basic idea could not be settled. As long as the Ptolemaic Empire ruled in the land of Israel, uh, the Jews somehow uh, were able to practice their Judaism. And the fight remained an internal fight between the Hellenists and between the rabbis and the traditionalists. However, uh, by the year... Uh, 180 before the Common Era, the Northern Empire uh, grew stronger than the Southern Empire. And it invaded the land of Israel. It controlled it. And uh, the Northern Empire was determined uh, to crush uh, the Jewish opposition to Greek culture. It was determined to do so much in the way in our time uh, that the communists in Russia were determined to crush any vestige of the Jewish religion or any religion because they felt that it was counterproductive to the advance of civilization. The Greeks felt that they were advancing civilization. They were bringing everything forward into the brave new world. And here were these old-fashioned, stubborn people who stood in the way of progress. And the only thing to do when, when you stand in the way of progress is to get crushed. And that is what the Seleucid kingdom attempted to do. And they instituted a reign of terror for 15 years in which they banned the observance of mitzvot. Uh, people who circumcised their children were put to death. Uh, Jews were forced to eat uh, non-kosher food. Uh, the temple itself was defiled. A statue of Zeus was placed in the courtyard of the temple. And the rabbis went underground. And those that were caught were killed. It's a history of martyrs. Thousands of Jews were killed. But the Jewish spirit was not broken. In fact, the Jews became more and more stubborn. And finally, in the year 165... We have the great revolution of the Maccabees, of Matityahu and his, and his five sons, 
who began the revolution, and they, uh, through a series of uh, guerrilla warfare tactics, uh, made it so expensive for the northern Greeks to be in the country that eventually the northern Greeks retreated and left the country. Uh, they, uh, we have a book, the Book of Maccabees, uh, which was written at the time. It was never included in the uh, canon of the Bible because it was written after the Anshe Knesset Agdola had closed the Tanakh, uh, the 24 books of the Tanakh. But as history, uh, through the Book of the Maccabees and through Josephus, we have an inkling of the wars. Uh, all uh, Matijo died of natural causes, but four of his five sons were killed in the war, including the main general, uh, his son Yehuda. And the only one that survived was Shimon, but Shimon eventually organized the Jewish government. J.M. in the A.M., right, Beryl Wine and his uh, lecture, uh, lecture number two in the five-part series, uh, 5,000 Years in Five Hours. This is Ezra Taravina. We will hopefully be able to conclude that lecture later on in the 8 o'clock hour on this Monday here at J.M. in the A.M. It is the 20th of July, the 4th of Av. We say good morning during our nine days format here at J.M. in the A.M. I thank Matis for kicking off our nine days format yesterday. We continue today. Uh, we get back to our regular format next Sunday night. Next Sunday night, we actually go back to our regular format. And, of course, uh, Monday will be a uh, regular format show a week from today here at JM. And I'm building up to the uh, observance of Tisha B'Av, which this year is on the 10th of Av, Saturday night and Sunday. And um, here we are during the nine days as we uh, present our spoken word format at JM in the AM. 81 degrees, afternoon thunderstorms, a high temperature of 92. I uh, hope everybody who was up at visiting day yesterday enjoyed a remarkable opportunity to get together with family and friends. Hopefully everybody got home safe and sound and enjoyed a great visiting day in the Catskill and Pocono regions. The Nine Days Program documentary screening is announced by the uh, folks at Project Witness. Um... That's happening starting tonight. There's a program in Brooklyn, New York tonight, a women's program at a Terrace Golda on 50th Street starting at 5.30 and then a second showing at 8 p.m. The men's program will be at Lipschitz Hall, 5014th Avenue tonight starting at 8 p.m. It's a nine days program documentary screening with Project Witness, the saga of Polish jury entitled Once Upon a Family. The Catskills program... For teens and the women, uh, will take place at Monticello High School this coming Wednesday. Information about all of this, um, it's 718-WITNESS. Again, that's 718-WITNESS, nine days program documentary screening tonight for women starting at 5.30 at a Terrace Golda for men starting at 8 p.m. at Lipschitz Hall, 5014th Avenue in Brooklyn, New York. As has been a tradition of ours for many years here at JM and the AM, uh, at some point during the nine days, we like to present my father, Rabbi Zev Siegel, uh, of blessed memory, and his eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. This took place 21 years ago on the uh, Shloshim Observance, which uh, was the third of Av. Today's the fourth of Av. Uh, back 21 years ago, uh, my father, who had a, a close relationship with the Lubavitcher Rebbe and quite an insight and understanding into his incredible leadership and 
just his uh, amazing abilities in so many different areas, he was asked to uh, deliver the uh, eulogy uh, during the Shloshim observance. He was asked by uh, our dear friend, Rabbi Moshe Herson of the Rabbinical College of America in Morristown, who I know takes great pride in the fact that we continue to present this amazing piece on the air here at JM&AM year after year. And um, I hope that everybody out there, if you have not had an opportunity to hear it, you'll be able to pay close attention over the next few minutes and um, and hear what was uh, really an amazing synopsis of an incredible life. Rabbi Zev Siegel on the life of the Lubavitcher Rebbe is next at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. This coming uh, Shabbos, we shall read in the Torah the summation of Moshe Rabbeinu. And among the things that Moshe Rabbeinu says is Echo Eso Levadi Tochachem Masachem Berifchem. Moshe Rabbeinu confesses that he doesn't know how he is able to carry the burden of leadership all by himself. And then he continues, so he decided there should be a leadership assisting him. And he says the qualifications of leadership should be the following, and this is what the Torah tells us. Get yourselves man Chachomim, wise men, Unevonim, understanding men, Vyiduim leshivtechem, Vaasimem beroshechem. Now you can't help but associate this statement of Moshe Rabbeinu where he designates the qualifications that there is a very strong relationship to Chabad. He says, Chachomim, Chochbo, Nevonim, Bino, Veyiduim, Das, and this is Chabad. The leadership of Klal Yisroel was given to the Rebbe and he fulfilled that mission to the maximum that can be fulfilled he had Klal Yisroel the entire people of Israel was his concern and a deep concern every 
corner in the world, no matter how forsaken it was, and no matter how few Jews were there, he had them on his mind, in his heart and his soul. If there was a man qualified to reconstruct Jewish life after the great Hurban, after the tragic Holocaust that befell our people, he was one man who did it. He reconstructed Jewish life in a very commendable way and at the same time he made Jews feel without any exception whoever they may have been that they are a part of this reconstruction He worried about every Jew wherever he was. And he had a certain devotion and dedication to Claudius Royal. I used to sit and I had the great privilege, and I don't pretend that I understood the rabbi. I don't pretend that I can evaluate his scholarship or his spiritual greatness but at the same time in my own way I was privileged to spend a great deal of time it is no secret many of you know it I used to come in 12 o'clock midnight and walk out not earlier than 3.30 in the morning and sometimes even later. And after a while when we were sitting the bell used to ring and I tried to get up because I knew there were people waiting there people who were older than me And as I was trying to get up, the Rebbe said in a tone almost of chastising me, he says, what are you, we are talking about the Klal. Wir reden wegen Klalsachen. And there was no disturbance when he was engaged in worrying about Claudius Royal. And I can go on and on about his great concerns. Nothing else to point out except the Jewish community in the former Soviet Union. Where three generations of Jews were alienated from everything that had to do with Judaism. And the only underground movement 
that succeeded in existence during the Bolshevik regime was the Lubavitch movement. And I know for a fact, I can stand here for hours and testify how this underground movement functioned with real devotion and dedication to everything that had to do with Jews and Judaism. And the Rebbe was the leader. No matter how many thousands of miles he was away, they were waiting with a great deal of thirst to hear something from 770. I was in Riga and Professor Branover was there. And you probably heard of Professor Branover. Beside being a devoted Hasid, a great scientist, universally recognized, a real Jewish leader, respect from all walks of life in the state of Israel, under every government, and Professor Branover told us the following. When Gorbachev came to power, the Reb, so people were very scared at the time. And the Rebbe sent a message to the Jewish community in Russia, and he told them, don't worry, things will get better. And actually, they accepted the Rebbe's word. And it calmed them down a little bit. But then Branover says when Gorbachev was in Israel recently, and he spent quite some time with him, so he asked Gorbachev, did you really, when you came to power, did you really think that you are going to change from your predecessors? And Gorbachev said, no, not at all. In fact, my idea was to tighten a little stronger than my predecessors. Gorbachev didn't know where he's heading to, but the rabbi had enough insight to predict that things will improve. And I can testify it from another angle. You remember when the El Al plane was hijacked to Algiers? And the rumor was that Ariel Sharon was to be on this plane and he was told by the Rebbe that he should not travel with that plane. That was the rumor. When I met next with the Rebbe, so a little time passed, and I was curious, 
And I said to him, I hear rumors that you stopped Sharon from traveling on that El Al plane that was hijacked to Algeria. And the rabbi said the following. He made sure that he did not accept when I said he stopped the plane. And he said, you know, Sharon came to say goodbye to me before he went to Israel. And I said to him, don't go. And Sharon didn't go. Says it's true. So naturally, obviously, I ask the next question. If you knew that the plane will be hijacked, why only save Sharon? You could have saved everyone else on that plane. And the rabbi gave me a look like I interpreted that it was not the wisest question that I have asked him. And he says to me the following, he said, he said it in Yiddish, do you think that I saw a plane being hijacked? He came to say goodbye, and all I did was say, don't go. For me, this was testimony of a certain insight that very rare human beings possess that insight. And this is what Braunover meant. And this insight was used to reconstruct Jewish life in the world again. A great deal was said about the Rebbe's Involvement in Eretz Yisrael. I knew many, many leaders in Jewish life. Zionists and non-Zionists. I had the privilege to be the youngest delegate. Believe it or not, I was young once the youngest delegate to the last Zionist Congress before the establishment of the Jewish state in Basel. And I sat on very important committees. And I saw leaders as well in the Torah world as well. But every one of them had a certain area of knowledge and insight one may have been politically, diplomatically well-versed. Or one may have been involved in the economics. Or one may have been involved in science. Or in military affairs. But the rabbi had them all. And I can again say it from personal experience. The hours that I listened and discussed of every conceivable phase 
in the life of Eretz Israel. Not only education, not only the practice of Torah, but every conceivable phase of life in Eretz Israel. And I don't have to tell you his concern about the Shlemus of Eretz Israel. That was on his agenda. And in the last few years he had something to worry about, as we see it now. We talk about outreach a great deal. There are many, many who are occupied with outreach and God forbid for me to minimize it. I know what it is. I was a little involved with it. But the outreach of Lubavitch is second to none. The devotion and dedication and the misiras nefesh of the shlichim in all parts of the world. I was sitting a short three weeks ago, a Friday night, who is now acting as the chief rabbi of Latvia. And you know the days are very long now in that part of the world. And I heard the Friday night the devotion, the discipline. Nothing was difficult. And if there is Jewish life today in Riga, it is this chief rabbi who could have stayed in Kfar Chabad with his family. Instead, he is suffering in Riga. Or a young man, many of you may know Grossman, a wife, a young wife with three infants, doing youth work in every possible way. He's running now a summer camp. And I don't have to tell you, I, I had occasion to, a couple of years ago when I spoke for a group who was involved with Lubavitch, to tell you about someone who was very, very active here, Rebleib Raskin, who is in Casablanca for many, many years. And I saw him there in 68, also with infants. And when I went down from his apartment about one o'clock at night on a Friday night, and I said to him, excuse me for keeping you so late, so he says, what do you mean, excuse me? 
First of all, you are the first one who is here, who was there. There in Morocco in those days, there meant Israel. That's number one. So we heard what's doing. And secondly, he says, let my children know that there is, there is a Jew in the world who speaks Yiddish too. I can tell you many stories, but my time is limited. I can tell you what the Rebbe did in South Africa when I was there in the 70s, when the Jewish community was in a turmoil, and the Rebbe calmed them down, and the Shlichim there did their job. If there is a Seder in Himalaya, who does it? If a shochet was needed in Romania, who supplied it? If a mohel was needed in any part of the world, they were there. And they are still there. Yes, indeed. Outreach to its maximum all part of a reconstruction of Jewish life. Tremendous amount of creativity. You remember when the rabbi started with the Mifzat feeling in the Six-Day War? And feeling was not the most popular thing on the American scene. It was popular maybe on the day of Bar Mitzvah or a month before the Bar Mitzvah. But I have noticed what film did. When you come to the Kotel, to the Western Wall, a religious Jew has no problem. Either he dons Minche or Mayriv or Shachris, and if he comes in another part of the day, he says, steal him. He reads the Psalms. But what does a non-religious Jew do at the Kotel? What does he do? Another piece of paper on the wall. But feeling became synonymous with the Kotel of the non-committed Jew. He comes to the Kotel, he knows that this is the time to put on film and say Shema Yisrael. Or all the other projects, the lighting of candles, and other creativity. The Rebbe was the first one on the American Jewish scene who did not permit Jews to run away from Jewish neighborhoods. But as it was said at the same time, the Rebbe never forgot the individual. And I want to share with you 
One of the experiences I had, which I must confess to you marked the rest of my life, particularly in the last few years, it was a great help to me. On one of my travels, and until this day I don't know how the rabbit discovered that I'm going somewhere, I was called and the rabbi asked me to do something in that particular country. I came back, so I gave him a report, and again with lack of wisdom, I say to him, I conversed in Yiddish, I said the rabbis will listen, as is nicht gewenken geringe I said the rabbi should know that this was not easy, an easy task for me. It was very difficult. And again the rabbi looks at me and makes me aware how uh, unwise I am, to put it mildly. And he says to me, Alav Segal, Zint ven, Otir gemachta contract mit Nuribene Shalaylom, Faragringen leben. The rabbi says to me, Since when did you make a contract with the Almighty for an easy life? And as I said, among many, many things, this has become a guide in my own life. Yes, indeed, my friends, there is a great deal to be said, and a great deal will be said. Because in all this, there is immortality. The Rebbe was not only the Manig Hador, he will be the Manig Hadoros. Many, many generations will benefit from what the Rebbe was for the people of Israel. And I know I'm as sure as I can be that right now as he stands before the Kisei HaKovot he is doing everything he possibly can bring about our Geulo Shleimo B'Mehero Amen. J.M. in the A.M., the uh, brilliant and incredible presentation by my father, Rabbi Zev Siegel, 21 years uh, after the passing of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. This was uh, delivered during the Shloshim Observance 21 years ago on the 3rd of Av. 
and uh, it's a a piece that has really um, inspired many, many people and is constantly requested. We try to fit it into our nine days format each and every year right here at JM in the AM. 29 minutes after 8 o'clock on this Monday with 81 degrees, afternoon thunderstorms, and a high temperature of 97. We're going to try to get to uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine's second half of his lecture on the period of history from Ezra to Ravina. Rabbi Wine has a series where he goes through a thousand years of Jewish history in one lecture and the totals, of course, 5,000 years in five hours. Uh, information about all of Ray Wine's lectures, it's 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. MP3s are available, makes it a lot easier these days as well. So keep that in mind. Uh, I want to thank Danny Danone, member of Knesset, a member of the Israeli cabinet who joined us earlier in the 7 o'clock hour. I remind you, this coming Wednesday, a very important rally, the Stop Iran Now rally takes place 5.30 p.m. Times Square, 7th Avenue, 42nd Street, New York City. Do your best to be there, 5.30 until 7.30 this coming Wednesday, New York City's Times Square again. Please do your best to be there. Uh, very important that there be an incredible showing this coming Wednesday in Times Square. Uh, we have been in touch with many local officials, members of the House of Representatives, members of the United States Senate from this area. We hope that you, no matter where you live, because we have supporters of this show from 20 to 30 different states around the United States, all of you have a role to play. You all have members of the United States House of Representatives. You all have members of the United States Senate from your state. Please, if it's a uh, a congressman or a senator, Make it known to them what your feelings are about this deal with Iran. In terms of our local folks here, and most notably, of course, people are expecting United States senators from our area to speak out. Uh, statements were released late last week, uh, specifically by Senator Schumer's office, that he carefully over the weekend with a fine tooth comb, so to speak, as he put it, is reviewing the contents of the deal, and uh, he will reach a determination and let us know his feelings about the deal at some point. So that's the latest. Apparently he is not acknowledging or doing any interviews on this topic with any news outlet, or any type of radio or television outlet, apparently. So um, we will be patient and we'll keep you up to date in terms of progress with the senator and in terms of progress with other senators and members of the House of Representatives. Uh, you know about the rally. It's this coming Wednesday. You know about the uh, Mincha service at the Isaiah Wall. It's this coming Sunday at 2 p.m. on Tishabov uh, Day. Isaiah Wall is 43rd Street and 1st Avenue in New York City. Bring your talis and tefillin and join us for a very inspiring Mincha. want to take this opportunity because I heard from listener Sina. Uh, she says, best wishes for a very happy birthday, number six, going out to Chaya Schreiber of Bayswater. Chaya, we can't believe you're so grown up already. Sorry we can't celebrate in person. Make sure We will make sure that next time we'll treat you to your special pink donut with sprinkles. That sounds good, Chaya, and sounds like a good nine days treat as well. Love you tons. Hope you had a great day from Bubby and Zadie, Florida. And uh, we wish them, we know them as Ira and Cena, a wonderful day as well from all of us here at JMM. Even during the nine days format, Cena, make sure to get that great news over our airwaves, I must acknowledge and uh, 
and uh, admit how much I admire that. All right, 28 minutes before the hour. It's JM and the AM on this Monday, closing out our program with this lecture by Barbara Wine, part two of the 5,000 Years in Five Hours as we look at Jewish history in a concise and abbreviated form. Uh, we continue here at JM and the AM. And his, and his five sons who began the revolution and they uh, through a series of uh, guerrilla warfare tactics uh, made it so expensive for the northern Greeks to be in the country that eventually the northern Greeks retreated and left the country uh, they, they, we have a book the book of Maccabees uh, which was written at the time it was never included in the uh, canon of the Bible because it was written after the Anshe Knesset Agdola had closed the Tanakh, uh, the 24 books of the Tanakh. But as history, uh, through the book of the Maccabees and through Josephus, we have an inkling of the wars. Uh, all uh, Matijo died of natural causes, but four of his five sons were killed in the war including the main general, uh, his son Yehuda. And the only one that survived was Shimon. But Shimon eventually organized the Jewish government. Shimon never called himself a king because they were Kohani. They were priests, the Hashmanoi. And we have always the danger of the concentration of too much power in the hands of one person. The rabbis were always opposed to that. The rabbis liked chaos. They liked that it should not be centralized. And that's a basic Jewish view uh, that has survived and is very healthy here in the state of Israel. Um, But it's a basic view of things. Power, dictatorial power to be everything. So in the first temple, the checks and balances were the high priest the king and the prophet. In the second temple where there was no prophet and that the same man should be the high priest and the king uh, would automatically spell trouble. So Shimon, who was a very righteous, pious person and who the rabbis approved of and he had very good relationship with them, so he called himself the head of the council of the Jews. He didn't call himself a king. And the Hasmonean coins that we have from that era say, Nasi Hever Ayyudi, the chairman of the uh, council of the Jews. In practical terms, he was both the high priest and he was the man that ran the country. But he was a righteous man, a holy man, and he was yet the hero of the revolution. And therefore, uh, there really were no negative results from his occupying that position. However, when he died, uh, then the Maccabees begin an inexorable slide downwards. Because, uh, first of all, you have dynastic problems. Which son will become the head? So we have a number of civil wars amongst the Maccabee children and grandchildren. And then, finally, uh, you have uh, kings such as Alexander Yanai, Alexander Janius, who was a tremendously powerful person, 
who took upon himself the role of being the king, and not only the king, but the dictator, as well as being the high priest, and he already uh, abused the powers. There arose within the Jewish people a group, the Hellenists were out of favor because the Hashemnoim had defeated the Greeks. But the Hellenists lived on in a group called the Tzdokim, the Sadducees. The Tzdokim were opposed to the rabbis, to the Prushim, and the Tzdokim reinterpreted the Torah according to their fashion. And they denied the validity of the oral law. In effect, they made their own moral law. And their own oral law sometimes was more stringent and sometimes was more lenient. But they were strongly affected by Greek culture. And they somehow had a tremendous foothold amongst the priests, amongst the Kohanim, and they also had a tremendous foothold among the aristocracy, the wealthier Jews, those that were close to the government. Until finally, the king himself became a Tzdokim. We have the famous incident uh, that's recorded in the Talmud, that when Alexander Yanai uh, came to perform the service in the temple on the holiday of Sukkot, so there's a special korban, of Nisuchamayim, of the libation of water. They took water from the spring of Gihon and brought it up to Jerusalem with uh, bonfires and with bands and dancing. And it was one of the highlights of Sukkot. And then the high priest was supposed to pour the libation on the corner of the altar. And that was the uh, Nisuchamayim. Nowhere in the Torah is it written specifically, clearly, this sacrifice, this libation. It, the entire uh, halacha is based upon Torah Shabal Peh, on Drushes. And Alexander Yanai, to show that he was a Tzoki, and that he didn't accept what the rabbi said, took the water, the pitcher, the golden pitcher of water, and instead of pouring the water on the altar, poured it on his feet. But he did that in full view of thousands of Jews in the temple. The Jews were so enraged that they pelted him with their esrogim. They almost killed him. Not only pelted him with the esrogim, they broke off a piece of the altar, throwing stones and esrogim. And the king panicked. And he ordered his soldiers into the temple. 3,000 Jews were slaughtered in the temple that day. And from that moment on, there began a tremendous civil war uh, led by the rabbis against the Hashmanoyim. Alexander Yanai was a uh, fearsome person. According to Josephus, he crucified 3,000 Talmidei Chachomim on the road outside of Yerushalayim. But the uh, people, the masses, were with the rabbis and against the Tzdoki. And therefore, he was uh, unable to uh, put down the rebellion. And the rabbis, uh, the Talmud itself says that on his deathbed, he said to his uh, son, uh, fear not from the Tzdokim, and fear not from the Purushim. The ones to fear are the hypocrites who uh, behave evilly and expect to be rewarded as though they are pious. 
And this became a famous statement in Jewish life. Osi Masa Zimri, they behave like Zimri, the immoral leader of the tribe of Shimon, Umavachin Schar Kapinchas. And they want to be rewarded as though they're Pinchas and the man that rose to kill him and to restore the honor of Torah. From this point on, the leaders of the people uh, were uh, taken now from the Talmud Chachomim. It's as though the Jewish people ignored the government completely. Now, Alexander Yanai's widow was the famous queen Shlomtzion Amalka. All the streets here are named after the Hashmanoim. If you go up Shlomtzion, you get all the... If you know the streets of Jerusalem, you know a lot of Jewish history. And she was a sister of Shimon ben Shotach. And Shimon ben Shotach was the head of the Prushim. So when her husband died, Shimon ben Shotach had fled into exile into Egypt. Together with the other leaders of the Prushim, she recalled them all. And Shimon ben Shotach became the prime minister under her reign. And then the Prushim took control of the government. And uh, the, uh, the reign of the Tzdukim uh, was temporarily interrupted. This is the end of side one. that the Hashmanoim did in order to safeguard themselves against the Greeks was they made an alliance with the new bully on the block with Rome. It was like, you know, the Cold War, right? You have Greece and Rome. You're a small country in the middle. And so you have to be protected by someone. So the arrangement that the Hashmanoim made was that the Romans would protect them. And they invited the Romans to send the legion here into the land of Israel. Uh, the 10th legion came and uh, the uh, city of uh, the Caesarea of Caesarea eventually became its base. So in the country you had 10,000 armed Roman soldiers. Eventually the Romans decided, they, the Romans defeated Greece and the Romans decided to exercise control over the country. Uh, Mark Anthony came to the country, uh, Nero came to the country, Nero captured the city of Jerusalem, though he did not sack it. And the Romans uh, instituted uh, puppet governors uh, to run the country for them. Uh, one of the uh, things that the rabbis criticized the Hashmanoim was that the Hashmanoim forcibly converted the Idumians, a tribe that lived in the Negev, who were not Jewish, they forcibly converted them to Judaism. The Idumians became uh, the soldiers of the Hashmanoyim, the mercenaries who worked for the Hashmanoyim. And the head of the army, Jewish army, was a man called Antipater, who was an Idumian. And he had a son called Herod. Herod received an education in Rome. In fact, he was friends with the Roman, later with the Roman Emperor Claudius, 
because they went to school together. And Herod is a, uh, was a megalomaniac. He was a tremendous builder, uh, but he was a person with great paranoia. And he was a murderer, violent person, suffering from uh, probably mental disease. And the Romans eventually appointed him as the governor of Judea, of the land of Israel. And he wanted to ingratiate himself and be accepted as the king of the Jews by the Jews. He persecuted the rabbi something fierce. He also, uh, his wife was the la- was a daughter of the Hashmanoim. So he tried to make himself legitimate in uh, being the king by marrying a daughter of a Hashmanoyim. However, uh, she committed suicide and he killed his own children so that none of the Hashmanoyim survived. And the rabbis say, anyone who says that he's descended from the Hashmanoyim, you know that he's an Idumian, he's an Evid, he's a slave, he's not legitimate. And there are great discussions in, in Jewish history and in Jewish philosophy why such a great family as the Hashemnoim, uh, who were heroes, and we have a holiday of Hanukkah based upon them, and uh, they're remembered so fondly, why they should have suffered such a fate. But that's what happened. Now Herod, in order to gratiate himself with the Jews, decided that he would rebuild the second temple. Herod was a great builder. We can see his handprints all over the country. Uh, the uh, building on top of the Morris Amachbela is Herodian. Uh, the uh, Matsada is Herodian. The, uh, the fortress of Herodian is Herodian. The western wall, the Cote de la Maravi, is Herodian. Wherever you go in the country. And tens of thousands of people died building these things. Even immense rocks, stones. If you'll go to the southern wall of the temple, uh, which is open now, you can see the southern wall. Uh, there is a stone there uh, that is nine meters long. One solid stone. How did they pick it up? How did they fit it? You're not talking having hydraulic crane. They did it by human beings. And if the stone slipped, so 50 people were crushed. But that didn't bother him. And uh, he spared no effort or no money in the building of the temple. He brought Carrera marble from Italy. Uh, He laid the floor of the temple, the rabbis say, that it looked like the waves of the sea. Uh, So perfectly fitted was the blue stripes in the white marble. And the rabbi said that he who did not see the building of Herod never saw what a beautiful building looked like. It was one of the wonders of the world. Millions of tourists came to see it. The economy of the country boomed simply because of the fact of this tremendous building. The building was gold and silver, marble. Uh, the uh, replica in the Holy Land Hotel, which many of you may have seen, uh, maybe that's what it looked like, maybe it isn't. But uh, it gives one a sense of the grandeur of the building and how it dominated all of Jerusalem. Herod also built tremendous palaces, uh, public arenas, amphitheaters, 
They had chariot races, everything that Roman culture was. The Jews were less attracted to Roman culture than they were to Greek culture. Because Roman culture basically was much more violent. It did not have the finesse, it didn't have the shine that the Greeks had. The Romans, however, ruled the country, and they ruled it with a very strong hand. When Herod died, his children, his grandchildren, inherited the uh, leadership, but they were uh, very, very much the puppets of Rome. And there arose amongst the Jews a movement for independence, for national independence. And the Jews somehow convinced themselves that they would be strong enough to oust the Romans from the country. The rabbis opposed the war. The rabbis did not see it as heroic. They saw it rather as being uh, certain to lead to the destruction of the temple and the crushing of all hope of Jewish nationalism. The war began in the year 66, the 66 after the Common Era. It lasted till the year 70. The Romans crushed the Jews. Uh, the Jews fought long and hard, but uh, to no avail. And the uh, Romans uh, sold uh, tens of thousands of Jews into slavery. There were so many Jews that were sold into slavery that the price of slaves dropped to nothing. And that stopped the Romans from selling more. The Jews throughout the diaspora uh, organized funds to redeem their brethren from slavery. And a large Jewish community then developed in Rome itself mostly from slaves who were freed and uh, who eventually gained influence in Rome. So now you have the second temple destroyed, burned to the ground. Uh, the Jewish national home is destroyed. And uh, many, many Jews left the land of Israel, whether forcibly or voluntarily. Most of them went to Babylonia. They went to Bovel, which was an established Jewish community, However, there were Jews throughout the Roman Empire. There were Jews in Britain, there were Jews in France, there were Jews in Germany, there were Jews in Spain, and also Jews moved east so that there were Jews all the way to India. And the beginning of the exile of the diaspora, as would be known later, was seen immediately after the destruction of the Second Temple. There was one more attempt for national independence, and that was 65 years after the destruction of the temple in the revolution of Bar Kokhba, led by Rabbi Akiva and others who thought that Bar Kokhba had messianic possibilities. According to some, uh, Bar Kokhba even reinstituted temple service in Jerusalem, even though he was unable to build a temple seems that the Jews did offer the Korban Pesach here in the year 136 and 137. So we have coins from the time of Bakochva. The, the coins are to the first year of Jewish freedom, to the second year of Jewish freedom, but it only lasted four years. Bakochva himself was killed. Uh, the entire army was destroyed. Again, tens of thousands of Jews were slaughtered. And uh, that was the end until our time, literally, of 
the idea that there would be a Jewish national homeland in the land of Israel. When the temple was destroyed, the rabbis made a fateful decision. They decided, basically, that the Jewish people could live without the land of Israel, they could live without the temple, they could live without a Jewish national home, but they could not live without Torah. And therefore, the rabbis said that our sole aim now will be to preserve Torah amongst the Jewish people. We have tried to preserve the temple, it's burned to the ground. We've tried to preserve the national homeland, we've been defeated, but nobody can stop us from Torah. And uh, as the Talmud records for us, Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai asked the Emperor Vespasian uh, for a favor, uh, give me Yavne, give me, let me have a yeshiva in Yavne. The Emperor thought he was giving away nothing, so he agreed. But the Emperor didn't realize that Yavne would outlive Rome by millennia, and that in effect what he did was gave Rabbi Yochum the key uh, to Jewish survival and Jewish existence. And the uh, idea of the study of Torah as being, so to speak, the only thing in Jewish life, since there was no national life, and there was no temple service anymore, so all there was was Torah. And the great men of the Mishnah, from Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai onwards, then Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shim ben Yochai, Ram Gamliel, etc., Rabbi Shim ben Gamliel, they each developed the, their yeshivas. Uh, the Jews had to move from Yavne, so they moved to the Galil. They moved all over, uh, trying to find a... Uh, safe haven for themselves but the yeshivot the study of Torah that was the main thing and that was emphasized J.M. in the A.M. Rabbi Beryl Wine who for us has become a uh, leader of a tradition here at J.M. in the A.M. his lectures dominate our nine days programming uh, Ezra to Ravina the second part of the five part lecture series on the crash course in Jewish history that's what you've been listening to here as we wrap up a JM in the AM Monday morning broadcast. Uh, information about all of Ryberl Wine's lectures, not just the ones we've been playing, you can call 1-800-499-WEIN or call the, or go online, rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com. Now with MP3s makes it even easier to purchase and install his lectures into your audio system. Um, I thank a member of Knesset, a member of the Israeli cabinet, uh, Danny Danone, who joined us earlier. If you missed any of that, of course, you'll find it in the archive section of jmam.org. Spoke about the Iran deal. I remind you that the Stop Iran Now rally takes place in uh, New York City, Manhattan. And my friend Moshe is going to be uh, heading to the rally, please God, on Wednesday. And I hope that everybody out there has an opportunity to head to the rally at 5.30 p.m. this coming Wednesday. 42nd Street, 7th Avenue in New York City. 42nd Street, 7th Avenue in New York City. It is the uh, Times Square Stop Iran Now rally with many distinguished sponsors, many organizations, a lot of great guest speakers. You'll be part of it um, this coming Wednesday in Times Square, and I hope everybody feels the need and, in fact, acts upon that feeling and comes on out 
to be part of the uh, event. Uh, that's this coming Wednesday, 5.30 p.m. at Times Square. Reminder, many events going on for Tisha B'Av in many different communities, including in New York City, Mincha at the Isaiah Wall, which has become synonymous with showing care and concern for Jewish communities around the world. Uh, Mincha at the Isaiah Wall will be this coming Sunday, 2 p.m. with Talis and Tefillin and a Torah, full-fledged Tisha B'Av davening. Mincha at the Isaiah Wall. Uh, coming up at 2 p.m. this coming Sunday. There are many years where uh, people who want to attend are not able to because uh, they're at work. Tisha B'Av is during the week. Obviously, that's a problem. Uh, this coming uh, Sunday, Tisha B'Av being observed on Sunday, we're hoping that, that will encourage more and more people to come to Mincha, the Isaiah Wall, to participate. Hear some great words and uh, be inspired, while at the same time standing firm for those Jewish communities and individuals who are in need around the world. It's always a powerful message on Tisha B'Av at that historic place across from the United Nations. So I hope everyone will have an opportunity to come on out and participate in Mincha services this coming Sunday. Reminder, in Brooklyn, New York, Project Witness has the uh, showings of their documentary going on tonight for ladies at a Terrace Golda in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, you can check that out. You can go to the web, projectwitness.org, projectwitness.org, or you can call them at 718-WITNESS, 718-WITNESS, for more information about their events that are going on throughout the entire period of the nine days. We'll continue our nine days format, of course, uh, through Tisha B'Av, and on Monday get back into our regular format and routine here at JM in the AM. Oh, thank you. I want to thank uh, listener Moshe who reminds me that Yoel Margulies, Yoel Margulies, who has become synonymous for us with the uh, Bike for Chai event, which is such an amazing fundraiser for Chai Lifeline and Camp Simcha, Yoel Margulies is celebrating a birthday. Happy birthday, Yoel, from all of us here at JM in the AM. Achenu Yisrael and Achim Achem, brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmdm.org. I think I noticed yesterday when I looked at the OBBL standings that the, the Lobos are now 3-0. and I guess we'll have more of an opportunity to speak about that uh, at some point next week here at JM and the AM, but apparently they are off to quite a start in the OBBL. So congratulations to all the teams that are enjoying great success. Tomorrow morning we're back, and our nine days format will continue, and I thank all of you for tuning in. Until then, Achim Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.